This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Another day in paradise. Off to work we go. Hi-ho, hi-ho. Isn't this... Is it Wednesday? Holy Hannah. I am beat. I got, I've got a speech tonight. Normally I get to take my nights off. But uh, last night I had a class teaching uh, communications to couples that are angry at each other, some of them. And um, tonight I get to go, I don't know, about 500 parents. We're talking how to raise healthy kids. Oh, I'm losing my voice. In fact, I had to do a last-minute run to go to uh, a big box store. I won't uh, tell you the name of it, but it rhymes with ball blart. And had to get more drugs. Found out that you can't buy, like, cough medicine without, like, being an adult. Kids, I guess, can't go buy cough medicine. Why is that, Ben? Have you been like trying to sneak cough medicine? Is that what's going on around the world? Yeah, that rule was made because of me. I can believe it. I can believe it. Today, by the way, Ask a Stupid Question Day. We do that every day. Every day. Uh, also, Mud Pack Day. Mud Pack Day? Yeah. Today, make yourself beautiful for Mud Pack Day by plastering your face and skin with safe, clean mud. Nice. Keep Where do you your, get the mud? Uh, I, In I, backyard? Yeah. You just pour water into dirt. <laughs> And you got mud. And this is one of my favorite words. Uh, it'll keep your skin supple. Supple's a good word. Supple. <laughs> Man, Dan, your skin is so supple. Your pores clear and your face looking youthful and clean. Today is also National Chewing Gum Day. Love gum. And National Women's Health and Fitness Day. Well, that's a lot of days today. It's a lot of days today, which, Kathy, you're always fit. You're fit Try as to a, be. You're fit as a fiddle. Yeah, I love to work out. You know, I love to work out. I actually crave it sometimes. And I, Do you? Yeah. You're addicted. I, feel, I love it. I love working out. I feel bad for those who hate to work out. I have a friend who just despises it. Oh, I hate and I actually, it. Do you? Yeah. Oh, if I God wanted us to work out, don't you think he would have given us like <laughs> fitness equipment? <laughs> uh, he did. They're called, uh, they're called vegetable cans and milk, uh, milk jugs. I don't know. Yeah. He, if God... Whatever you can use. I don't know. He, he wants us to work out. But I... The whole sweat of the brow thing. You know, for me, almost it's more psychological yeah. than physical. You know, I just need those endorphins. I think if I had to, I actually love to, I loved, I do like to work out. It's, it, you just have, it has to be like naturally nicely fitting into your day. <laughs> That's the hard part. If you have to like fit it in at the very end of your day or, yeah. You know, I used to do it before coming here. I used to do it in the morning. Mm-hmm. And now that we're here so early, God, sometimes it's hard. Yeah, when you get do you home work and you're out? so tired. You have to do it. I try to do it right when I get home or I won't get yeah. it done. Yeah. Or if there's a good game on or something, I'll, I'll ride the bike and watch the game. That is my favorite. So when winter comes, I, we, have a, we, we have a treadmill and we've put it in – it's hard to explain – a storage room. <laughs> but it's the coolest room in the house. So it's so nice. So I just go put on a little Netflix action. Yeah, there you go. And if I'm working out, my wife thinks 
it doesn't matter what I'm doing. Yeah. So no, she doesn't care that I watch Netflix. So do you have to watch kind of a action action movie to get you going? Or? Yeah. No, okay. it doesn't. It's, it's like all. a love story that you can't run to that. No, you know what's funny no. is if you just turn on the treadmill, you pretty much have to move. <laughs> you do. You don't or you're going to be shot right <laughs> off the other side. So I just turn it on and uh. my body starts to respond. Hey, um, so Putin is just – I think he's taking our president to task. Oh, no doubt about it. He's making us look weak. He's making us look pretty darn weak. And so today on the show, we um, – I wanted we, – we interviewed a, a professor here from Brigham Young University, um, Dr. Jeff Hardy, who is an assistant professor of Russian and Eastern European history. And uh, we interviewed him a, a couple months ago. But I wanted – we're going to replay that interview because it gives us some pretty interesting insight into what's really going on with Russia. And I think if we understand Russia's history, we might understand why Putin is doing what he's doing. He's 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 beating up the president. And today they started uh, they started dropping bombs on Syria. Right. The scary <sighs> thing is, he's. I think he's coming across like he's this great guy and he's doing all this good. And I'm not sure yeah. in the end that that's really no. his his main motive. Yeah. And but again, I think you, President Barack Obama drew a line in Syria. We're not going to take it past this line. Several and, lines, and I believe. Been, and yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a line drawer. <laughs> so uh, we'll be talking about uh, Russia in just a few minutes with uh, Dr. Jeff Hardy. But first, let's get to the headlines with Kathy Aiken. Kathy. Congressional leaders are gearing up to begin budget talks today with the White House. The House and Senate are moving toward passing a funding bill that will stop a federal government shutdown when the fiscal year ends tonight. A temporary funding measure that would give keep the government open past the midnight deadline should get to President Obama in time to avoid a shutdown. Planned Parenthood President Cecile Richards disputed charges that the Women's Health Organization profits from selling fetal tissue. In several heated exchanges during her testimony yesterday before the House Oversight Committee, Richards said the Republican accusations were outrageous and untrue. I commit to a careful oversight to ensure that you... That was obviously the wrong bite. P- Planned Parenthood has been under attack since secretly recorded videos purportedly show its employees negotiating the sale of fetal tissue for profit. Conservatives are calling for the federal government to defund the organization, which receives about $450 million annually. Kelly Gissendaner, the only woman on George's death row, was executed last night by lethal injection, despite several last-minute appeals and a plea from Pope Francis. Gissendaner was the first woman to be put to death in that state in 70 years. The 47-year-old was sentenced to death for plotting with her boyfriend to kill her husband. Gregory Owen, who stabbed the woman's husband to death in 1997, accepted a plea deal and was sentenced to life without parole. Pope Francis reportedly had a secret meeting with Kentucky County Clerk Kim Davis during his trip to the U.S. Davis was jailed for five nights after refusing to give marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Well, the meeting took place on Thursday afternoon last week. Uh, Kim Davis and Joe Davis uh, met Pope Francis. Uh, they had a private meeting with him. The Pope reached out his hands. He asked uh, Kim Davis to pray for him. Uh, she took his hands and she said she would pray for him. That She also asked that he pray for her. He thanked her for her courage. Davis's attorney, Matt Staver. Davis said it was humbling that the Pope would want to meet with her, and the visit, she said, validated her position. Russian lawmakers today voted unanimously to give President Vladimir Putin authority to use his nation's troops in Syria. Officials insist Moscow will not send ground troops to help Syria fight ISIS, only air force attacks. And according to recent reports, those strikes have begun near the city of Homs. 
and talk about bad luck, Matt. Chicago what? Bulls point guard Derek Rose. Did you hear about this? Oh, no. Took what? an elbow to the face yesterday. Oh, I think it was the first practice. Somebody said it was like 10 minutes into the practice to open the season, suffering a left orbital fracture. That injury will require surgery. So here's the list of former yeah. MVP's injury woes. Here we go. He tore the ACL in his left knee in 2012 and missed the next season. He then tore the meniscus in his right knee in November of 2013 and missed the rest of that year. He had more surgery on his right knee in February of 2014. In total, he has played in just 100 uh, regular season games since the beginning of the 2011 season. Okay, that has got to be so disheartening. Oh, it sounds like almost Taysom Hill-like, it doesn't it? Imagine, it so imagine Taysom like comes back next year and then somebody elbows him Ten and minutes into practice, his... yeah, he tears something else. Oh, my uh, goodness, I felt bad for the guy. Yeah, and he he's so good and break. so fragile. Yeah, very fragile. He's got that glass jaw. Yeah, I think so. And glass ACLs. <laughs> and meniscuses. But wouldn't you love to whatever. just see him just open it up for five seasons in a row? Yeah. He'd I know that poor up. guy just can't do it. it ah. Mostly knees. It's whole... always been knees, but this time, you know, the, I don't know who gave him the elbow, but it sounded pretty bad. Well, that's hard when your entire life is about your body, your, oh, yeah. your ability to yeah. – I mean, like when I was a supermodel mm-hmm. – uh, it was all about my abs. It sure was. They were supple. Supple. <laughs> I can't even hit the Oprah high note anymore. Supple. Oh, oh wow. Geez. Too bad for. Uh, Dar- you know what? Derek Rose. Derek Rose. Yeah. The thing about the NBA is their money, for the most part, is guaranteed. So he yeah. can have all these injuries, and he's still making tens of millions. Yeah. NFL, you know, unless you get that guaranteed signing bonus, you're not. You're done. That. You're done. See, that's why I'd play pro ball, pro, ba- pro basketball. Yeah, basketball or yeah. baseball. Baseball, or, I do baseball. You can get uh, guaranteed as well. Man, yeah, not and as many injuries in baseball. But I love, I love, I love this time of year. Yeah, this is getting good in baseball yeah, too. I know. Mm-hmm. And my Packers won Monday. I was here to they, tell you about I know, that. They killed. They, well, they didn't kill. Rogers but they, is just amazing. I think they're, that's the Super Bowl team right there. I hope so. Knock on wood. <laughs> Jordy Nelson, though, they're losing him. The receiver that I know. Uh, he's amazing. Hurt. And they're yeah. a good combo. Uh, don't you think? Yeah, really good. Well, good job, Packers. Uh, even though you beat the Chiefs, the, the greatest team on earth. Anyway, we're going to take a break. When we come back, let's uh, let's talk Russia. You know, we got to understand what's going on there. It's not enough to just demonize them. Since the Cold War, they've had quite a history. And joining us um, in just a few minutes, uh, we're going to be doing a replay of a, an interview I did with um, Assistant Professor of Russian and Eastern European History, Dr. Jeff Hardy here at Brigham Young University. He has his PhD from Princeton University. He's going to walk us through the past, the present, and the future of Russia and its impact on the United States. Stick with us, folks. We're talking Russia right here on The Matt Townsend Show. This episode of The Matt Townsend Show was recorded previously. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. I love this song. Hunt for Red October. Maybe that's not the best theme. We have to first figure out what's going on with Russia before we turn it into a Hunt for Red October theme. Hey, uh, on the show today, we're talking with Dr. Jeff Hardy, and he is an assistant professor of Russian and Eastern European history here at Brigham Young University. We wanted to pick his brain. He is an expert on Russia and it's such an interesting uh, situation. First of all, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. It's great to have somebody that has a clue because 
You know, we I was raised uh, thinking, you know, the USSR, Soviet Union, spawn of darkness, the Death Star. And then we have this Mr. Uh, President Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Then the next thing I know, when I'm a 21-year-old, boom, changed. Yeah. Now they're our friend, they're our ally. But now here, 25 years later, uh, some of the latest uh, studies show that uh, the relationships between the United States and the Russian government is the worst they've been in 25 years. In fact, in a recent article on Russia and America, Russians, 59 percent of Russians see the United States as a threat. That's up from 47 percent in 2007. 31 percent of those same people surveyed believe that the U.S., uh, may be preparing for a possible invasion or occupation of Russia. Um, and yet, and even in the United States, 18% of people in the United States believe that Russia is our greatest enemy. So, oh, Jeff, teach us. Um, just teach us where, what is going on with Russia right now and, and where, where have they come from? And, and are they – can they just not get rid of the old Soviet Union days? Tell us, fill us in. What's going on? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, uh, they were left with a an economy uh, that was basically a complete basket case. Uh, it was, the, the entire country was a rust belt, essentially. Uh, ref, economic reforms in the late Soviet period had not been successful. And this overnight transition to capitalism did not go smoothly. And we saw in the 1990s that Russia and most of the other post-Soviet republics uh, weathered a series of very serious economic crises uh, where the population became destitute, a large percentage of the population. Simultaneously, Russia saw its influence globally uh, recede. Yeah. Substantially. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Soviet Union, of course, one of the great two superpowers of the world since World War II, uh, now thrust into a position that was ambiguous at best and uh, really became you know, not quite a bit player in the world scene. Uh, but it found itself uh, in the shadow of American global dominance. We're being broken into parts, really, right? That's certainly a big part of it, yeah. Yeah, and so and so it was – what did it turn into being? 13 states? What was it? 15. 13, 15, 15 republics. Republics. So it, this, this powerful union of one that was communist controlled, I guess, and, and, and then broken into then bits, 15, right. but without really any economy. I mean it was – they were all struggling. Yeah, certainly. By the end of the, the 1990s when President Putin took – power, uh, democratically, I might add. Uh, yeah, Russia was in a very difficult place. Yeah. Uh, I, I was in Russia in the late 1990s, and it was it was tragic. Uh, health indicators were had completely collapsed. The average life expectancy for men at that time was in the mid-50s, oh, wow. if you can believe that. What was it in the United States, comparatively? Do you know? Yeah, mid-70s. Was it really? Yeah, so a, a huge uh, difference, and, and that had been a complete collapse from the Soviet times when the, the Soviet mortality was in, in the 70s. Uh, we saw you know, homelessness, uh, mm. close to star- starvation, uh, c- currency collapse, inflation. And, and so everything that we see now, we have to 
bear the 1990s in mind. Right. Uh, this point in time when democracy at its fullest was attempted and didn't produce the greatest outcomes uh, in terms of Yeltsin in particular. And capitalism was tried uh, and is still being practiced over there uh, to a great extent. Uh, but capitalism led to economic collapse. It, mm-hmm. it led to uh, shrinkage of GDP, if I remember my numbers correctly, of around 40%. So all things kind of Western failed Russia, failed the, these these Russian republics. At least this is – the narrative that the Russians construct yeah. about the 1990s. So the West has that, – that in a way, so the West did fail them. Capitalism, democracy, even – I mean they keep parts of every – all of it, but they kind of do it right. their way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and this is why we continue to see nostalgia for the Soviet Union that in America we have a hard time understanding. Yeah, why would, you, would they make right. nostalgic for this repressive system? Uh, and yet this repressive system in the 1960s, 70s, and the early 1980s uh, was a system that had one of the greatest educational and scientific establishments in the world. It provided a good standard of living, if not great, for most of its citizens, as long as you kind of, you know, kept your head down a little bit. <laughs> Stay busy. Uh, the, the economy was very functional. Yeah. It wasn't great, but it was functional. Uh, international prestige, you know, they, they sent the man uh, to outer space. You yeah, right. And all this, uh, you know, winning chess championships, winning the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, and then the 1990s, this is complete uh, collapse on all layers of society. And, and so the Putin era that we continue to, to now witness today uh, is largely a reaction to the 1990s. Uh, and it's part of this yearning to be something great as they were before. Yeah. It's, and it seems like he's, he's kind of, in a way, idyllic, I guess, because he's a, it seems like a uh, Putin, that is, a mix of both of these worlds. He wants kind of the capitalistic power. I mean, we've heard stories about how he's one of the richest men in the world, if you actually could know. Sure, yeah. And um, But then also he, he still seemingly has a supposed democracy where they're voting for people, and yet political you know, foes uh, are dying in as- alleged assassination attempts and things. So it's a weird... He, it's a weird space. And then the rest of us look at Vladimir Putin like, why doesn't he have a shirt on? You know what I mean? And I, so I'm assuming that some of that is just for home. He's just trying to play the strong man. Absolutely. Uh, most of what Putin does is for his domestic constituents. Yeah. Uh, Russia does remain a democracy. Uh, we have seen uh, some degree of election manipulation and fraud over the past several years. That notwithstanding, uh, Putin has been overwhelmingly popular yeah. in his country and given a free and fair election at any point over the past 15 years, he would not have lost yeah, those elections. Yeah, he's still going to win. Correct. And I guess that's that's a throwback, right? He's a KGB guy, yet yes. he also uh, – is the economy doing better now? Uh, the economy since 2000 – well, from 2000 until 2008 uh, did very well. Yeah. Uh, and we saw the emergence of a – a fairly large and to some degree wealthy middle class in Russia, which which was remarkable, something that we didn't see in the 1990s, a middle class that could buy cars and that could go on vacation to Europe and to the Middle East, uh, that had a discretionary income. Uh, the 2008 
global economic crisis uh, hit Russia fairly hard. Yeah. Uh, but as a result of some fairly prudent, we must say, economic policies pursued by Putin up to that point, uh, Russia had money stocked away. They they were ready, uh, as ready as you could be for this crisis, and they actually weathered it pretty Did they? well. Uh, more recently, we've seen the collapse of oil prices and oh, Western sanctions them, that has hurt them at a time when the rest of the global economy has been doing pretty good over the past couple of years. Hmm. Uh, and so we've got kind of we've entered a different economic period in yeah. Russia's history where they seem to be diverging from the rest of the world, again, based on oil prices and sanctions. We're speaking with Dr. Jeff Hardy, assistant professor of Russian and Eastern European history. We're going to take a break, come back, continue this discussion. I want to find out about the Ukraine that uh, supposedly they're not trying to take over. <laughs> and um, and and Crimea, maybe just give us mm-hmm. some information. There's just so much going on with Russia. Trying to understand Russia, a little bit better here, uh, bringing in the experts from Brigham Young University. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back, friends. This is the Red Army Choir. Sense of humor. They you totally have to appreciate did. that. <laughs> That's so great. Uh, Jeff Hardy's joining us. He's a, a professor here at Brigham Young University in Russian and Eastern European history. We're just picking his brain about Russia because to me they're so – it's such an interesting um, culture. Gorbachev a few months ago, did you, do you remember he came back and talked about how you know, disappointed he was right. in how the United States has handled it? I know uh, also um, – uh, uh, Vladimir Putin was was frustrated because the celebration for the the Russian German uh, war, mm-hmm. World War Two, World War in World War Two, we didn't we didn't come celebrate as much as the nobody came. None of the allies came to celebrate all of the work that Russia did during World War Two. Yeah, they sent lower level delegations yeah. for the seventieth anniversary, which which Putin wanted to make a big. Show of twenty, like twenty-one million or something. Russians died in that war. Yeah, and so in, in a way, we're maybe we're not a good neighbor. <laughs> you know, we, I mean, <laughs> that could, case could be made. Absolutely, or a good friend, I guess. Talk to us about Ukraine. There was an airplane shot down in mm-hmm. Ukraine uh, because of a, a war going on that apparently Russia's not involved in, but <laughs> apparently seems to be. Explain the whole Ukraine, Crimea, Russian thing because we're all hearing that in the news. Yeah, a very long history here. The The very earliest Russian state was, in fact, centered in Kiev, old Kiev and Rus, going all the way back to the 900s. Uh, and so Russia and Ukraine have been really intertwined in history. Uh, for several centuries, Ukraine was linked more with Poland politically. But then in the 1700s, we saw that Ukraine, uh, at least eastern Ukraine, was brought firmly within Russian control. Uh, Catherine the Great uh, annexed Crimea in the late 1700s, uh, and we saw much of the rest of what we now consider present-day Ukraine uh, come under Russian control at that point. It was part of the Russian Empire. In Soviet times, we saw for the first time the creation of a Ukrainian republic. This is not something that had 
ever existed before. I get in trouble sometimes with my Ukrainian friends for saying this, but it's it's basically true. Uh, because the Soviet Union had a very interesting nationality policy. Uh, that is, they were trying to build up the various small uh, national groups in the Soviet Union, the Belarusians, the Ukrainians, eventually the Lithuanians and Latvians, the Kazakhs and the Georgians. And so Ukraine enjoyed a fair amount of linguistic, cultural uh, development, even autonomy in Soviet times uh, that paved the way for Ukraine to be its own independent country in mm -hmm. 1991. Now, Crimea is an interesting case. Crimea was always very Russian, uh, ethnically, linguistically. And it's just kind of like an appendage to the Ukraine, right? Right. So it's connected to Ukraine. It's, yeah. an, it's a peninsula. Yeah. It's, it's barely just not connected to Russia. Russia. On the eastern side, it's separated by a narrow strait, the Strait of Kerch. Uh so it was always very Russian. The, the, the Russian Black Sea fleet was there. Uh, and in Soviet times, the Russians or the Soviets, I should say, did something very interesting. In 1954, uh, Khrushchev, this is right after Stalin's death, transferred Crimea from the Russian Republic Soviet Socialist Republic to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Hmm. Now, in Soviet times, this didn't make all that much of a difference, right? Yeah. Because it's it's one country. Yeah, you're still together. But when the Soviet Union collapses in 1991, all of a sudden, this piece of Ukraine, which had always been part of Russia and very Russian in nature up until 1954, was now part of Ukraine. Now, Yeltsin didn't do much about this in the 1990s, uh, but we saw Russian nationalists uh, over the years began to talk about reclaiming Crimea. Mm -hmm. And President Putin apparently began to buy into this idea. Uh, and so when the Ukrainian crisis broke out, the recent uh, Maidan protests, uh, apparently he, he saw this as his moment, uh, that we can reclaim this territory that, that should, in his view, belong to Russia. Well, and it, the Crimeans it, apparently wanted it? Well, you know, a thorny question. So yeah. I, I simplified things a bit. So Crimea was always very... Russian, continue to be so, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukrainian. There's also a sizable population of Tatars, uh, the Crimean Tatars. This is uh, a remnant of the uh, the Mongols, if you can believe it, wow. from way back in the, the 12th, 1300s. Yeah. Uh, they had been repressed in Soviet times, exiled to Central Asia immediately after World War II, ostensibly for collaboration with Nazi Germany. Hmm. Uh, allowed, the survivors allowed to return in the late 1980s, uh, they certainly did not want to see a Russian takeover of Crimea, mm. uh, fearing another round of, uh, of Russian repression against them. And we have seen, uh, to some extent, some okay. of that since the Russian yeah. takeover. Uh, Ukrainians in Crimea, uh, smaller in number, and they certainly didn't want to see a Russian takeover either. Interesting. Uh, the more interesting thing is that most Russians arguably up to the uh, the Maidan protest crisis, uh, we're not all that interested in Russian annexation either. Or this is something that caught them a bit off guard, although nationalist sentiment was quickly mo mobilized in the region. Yeah. How do you – it's so interesting because how – it really – you can't necessarily trust the information. So um, – but then you see, I, I would. I was just assuming there's got to be some resources or some other valuable reason that Russia would want the Crimea and want 
but it's really it's, so. I guess it is. It's just it's more of a historic grab than it is a resource grab. Yeah, it's definitely historical. Uh, the other important point is that the Black Sea Fleet, the Soviet Black Sea Fleet, uh, continued to be located in Crimea. Okay. after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, and so Russia was renting this naval base from Ukraine. They were okay. paying a very yeah, large sum of money. strategic, man. Exactly. So it's, it's a strategic position. It's got mm-hmm. this military base that Ukraine was threatening to take away, that is to not renew the lease, to take it back from Russia. Oh, boy. Uh, Russia saw this as a threat. We might also say that Crimea in Soviet times and even before Soviet times during the Russian Empire was a place where the Russian elite... Uh, and not just the elite. I mean, kind of your common working class uh, and and young people as well in Soviet times would go to relax. This yeah. is their beach resorts. This is you know, this is their Hawaii. It's a resort, yeah. So this is this. So it, and a a vacation spot. It's our Hawaii. It, it's like <laughs> you know, it's where you keep the fleet and you go have a nice retreat. Right. Um, Russia and China, there, there's a lot of talk now about the, they're strengthening some relationships. I mean, there's mm-hmm. obvious other issues that keep coming up. But it seems like they're kind of a natural fit. Russia has a lot of uh, oil. Correct. And uh, China has a lot of need for oil. What, where do you see that going? This is a relationship that has really developed under Putin. Uh, the Russian-China relationship was... Fraught with a lot of uh, tension, disagreement in Soviet times. As Americans, sometimes we saw, oh, the Soviets are communists, the Chinese are communists, they must be allies. Uh, In fact, from about 1960 onward, they were anything but allies. They were kind of mortal enemies. There were border clashes and so forth. Uh, But Putin has taken great steps to mend these fences, to to repair the relationships they've managed to uh, kind of uh, delimit the border in a couple of places uh, and we've got this new strategic, economic, and geopolitical partnership yeah. that has developed. This is a partnership that many observers, including myself, uh, see as favoring China much more than it does favor really? Russia. Uh, this is a play by Russia to draw China into some sort of kind of you know anti-Western block right. in international affairs. Uh, economically speaking, China is reaping most of the benefit of this relationship. Is it is it just because Russia is that desperate, or is it really because they really want to have the political power against the West? Yeah, they are really after geopolitical power. China takes a much longer term view of things, yeah. uh, and for them, economics makes. Much more to sense. They're, yeah. they're willing to let Putin and Russia kind of uh, be the fall guy Interesting. Uh, in international politics. Well, yeah, it's kind of smart politics, I guess. No, it is. Uh, the Chinese are very shrewd. It's a, it's a really interesting um, thing. There's another thing I've, we've got to ask you because she's running for president. Hillary Clinton, when yeah. she was secretary of state, went in and, and they were going to push the reset the button. The reset button, yes, of and, course. Um, and went, okay, so explain why that is such a fiasco. Because she – it was offensive. She, there was something about pushing the reset button that was mistranslated. Do you remember yeah, all of that? Yeah, it was mistranslated. The, the button said the wrong thing. <laughs> but uh, it was an offense like – Yeah, I mean to some extent. I, it wasn't what? taken too much as an offense. Uh, but I mean Hillary tried to do the same thing that President uh, George H. or George W. Bush did uh, early in his presidency when he – 
you know, says that he looked into Putin's soul, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and saw it was good. This is someone we could work yeah, with. Right. Uh, turned out to maybe not be the case, at least to the extent that we wanted uh, yeah. in terms of cooperation with our wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Russia did help to some extent with the war in Afghanistan. They certainly opposed us in the war in Iraq. Uh, Hillary tries to do the same thing and as previously, it doesn't go so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got relations uh, ameliorating to some extent immediately, but then kind of the, the tension, the suspicion uh, comes back in. Um, Vladimir says – Putin says there's no uh, – they have no enemies. Their only enemy is uh, anybody that doesn't, I guess, respect them. That uh, he, they, they say America always wants them to be a vassal, uh, right? Just a, a yes man, and they'll never be the yes man. What would you, if you were advising our State Department, what should our position be with Russia? Can we, can we ever really fully bring them into an allied position? Do you think, or is it just something they are kind of what they are? At this point, it would be very difficult. Uh, it was If I was advising back in the 1990s, early 2000s, uh, I would certainly have a we few had a things little to more say. hope there. Yeah, and I think we could have done a much better job in bringing Russia into political, economic treaties. We certainly did some of that. Uh, and we've done some of it recently. Uh, Obama and Putin signed uh, a few years back kind of an anti-nuclear pr- proliferation deal, uh, arms control. So we're still working on a few levels with the Russians. Uh, the Ukraine crisis has has just blown everything up. Yeah. Uh, And it's very difficult to see where things are going to go from here uh, in terms of our international relations. Uh, My counsel would be to try to treat Russia as a potential partner. But that has become so difficult in in recent years. Uh, President Putin has proved himself to be you know, much more aggressive than he was in the 2000s. Uh, and, you know, it's difficult to work with with, with such a man at, at this point. Well, yeah, do you, do you sense, I mean, just even the air flight that was shot down over the Ukraine, access wasn't necessarily granted very quickly. There's still right. no answers. Right. I mean, I mean we, we think we know what happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Ukrainian pro-Russian rebel shot it down with weaponry acquired from, from Russia. Russia. Uh, they claim there's no proof of this and that it was, you know, the Ukrainian army that did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Uh, hundreds of innocents dead. <laughs> right, hundreds of innocent dead and very little being done. Yeah. I mean, in part, the sanctions are a result of this flight being shot down, but they're tied to other things as well. So it's really kind of just be careful and give it time. Yeah, I I think this conflict certainly needs time at this point. We need a series of very gradual steps toward renewing economic relationships. But that can only occur if Putin withdraws his support for East Ukrainian rebels, which it looks like he's very loath to do. We still have reports of Russian military personnel, experts, advisors, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, a few of them were captured recently by the Ukrainian army. Mm. Uh, and of course, they're being disavowed by Russia, saying, no, these are just former soldiers. They're voluntarily. So, I mean, we still have uh, a conflict that is simmering, uh, that has not been resolved. Uh, and it's it's difficult to see the resolution of that anytime soon. Mm. 
Well, what's it like for you, just as we wrap up here, Jeff? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff, again, is a professor here at Brigham Young University of Russian and Eastern European history. You've lived there. You've, I have. You've studied it immensely. They have an incredibly rich history, and yet and then their current present state seems – they seem – I don't know. They seem proud. Absolutely, yet, as they angry, should be. Right, and angry at, <laughs> at the West. Right. What is it like for you to see it, and you know, what would your hopes be? My hopes are certainly for reconciliation uh, between us and them. It's a country that I enjoy visiting. Uh, I love to be with the Russian people. The Russian people, by and large, are uh, good-natured, friendly. Uh, I enjoy being with them. Uh, by the same token, they do have a deep-rooted suspicion of the West. Uh, and I think we can do better to try to overcome that. Uh, and the rhetoric from some of our politicians and thought leaders has not always been encouraging or helpful over the past several years. Now, is there a good reason for that? Yeah, perhaps, yeah. Uh, based on how uh, Putin has behaved in the international arena. Uh, but my hopes would certainly be for reconciliation. Yeah. Uh, and... I would remind our listeners that even in the depths of the Cold War, there was this period known as detente in Mm -hmm. the 1970s when President Nixon in particular was able to forge relationships, friendships, even with his Russian counterparts, where we saw a relaxation of tensions, where we saw a deepening of cultural exchanges, academic exchanges. Uh, And I think we should remember that moment and perhaps strive toward that. That's a great model, isn't it? Yeah, and and maybe it's kind of you need time and the right partners at the right time. You do, and then a really good party that always <laughs> helps. Well, we appreciate you, Doctor Jeff Hardy. Thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure and Thank taking you. I think a difficult topic and making it a lot easier. There you have it, my friends. A little Russia one hundred and one. Interesting, interesting stuff. We'll take a break. Come back. Uh, continue looking at some of the headlines. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little Russia 101 complicated stuff, isn't it? Yeah, who do you trust anymore? By the way, uh, still in Russia is whistleblower Edward Snowden. He officially came out of the shadows uh, recently. In fact, I think yesterday. He joined Twitter using the handle at Snowden, which uh, was apparently verified just within two hours of him joining. So Snowden is now online on Twitter and uh, the, the bio on his new account reads, I used to work for the government. Now I work for the public uh, director at Freedom of Press. At Freedom of Press is his handle. Remember, Snowden um, was arrested, well, had basically hmm, copied and stole information from the National Security Agency in 2013, leaked it, classified information. And um, this is what opened up a whole uh, bunch of uh, questions about the NSA practices in collecting information about other people. 
So far, by the way, Snowden's new account has amassed almost 300,000 followers in just a few hours. He's following um, only one account, though, which is interesting, at NSAGov. He's he's just going to keep watching what the NSA is going to say. But he's hanging out uh, in Russia. It's interesting because he's running out of time on his asylum um, there in Russia, so he's going to have to be making some decisions about where he'll go next. He's putting out bids. Anybody, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a small dictatorship somewhere, if you are looking to bring Snowden in, he'll make you popular, make you famous. Um, interesting story out of Florida file. Our, our Florida file, a lot of our favorite stories come from Florida. Don't know why that is. Just a great eclectic state, I think. It's not unusual for Florida police officers to respond to wild animal calls. Alligators, bears, families of ducks, you name it, the officers have heard it all. But Monday morning, a 9-11 caller reported something that even the Sanford Police Department called out of the ordinary. When they, <laughs> when they arrived on the scene, a male, um, a monkey, was eating the mail. He was sitting on the neighbor's mailbox. By the way, this isn't like a cute little chimpanzee. This is a huge, gnarly, muscly, I don't even know what breed, but monkey. Huge. And it, Yeah. We've got audio of it. Sitting on the neighbor's mailbox. And uh, the police were like, you know, th- this is definitely not normal. Something's out of the ordinary here. So how do you get a monkey... That's all wired up to how do you get him to calm down? Unsure whether or not the monkey was going to be aggressive, five police officers converged on the scene. Along with members of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, they responded to the call as a precaution. Officers used a patrol car to block off the road, shook a water bottle in an attempt to lure the monkey away from the busy street. The tactic worked, by the way. It works. Anytime you come across a crazy monkey, shake a water bottle. It also works with... Ben. That's how we get Ben into the studio. On occasion. Come on, Ben. Get your water. The tactic worked, but it also led the monkey on top of the patrol car where the monkey decided to pull the molding off the car. Isn't that cute? Cute little monkey just tearing up the police car. Uh, Later, the monkey's owner, who had a proper permit to own this animal, joined the officers in the wild chase. And before too much damage was done, they were able to... uh, you know, quit the monkey business. Re-cage that monkey. By the way, the monkey's name was Zeke. Oh, are you kidding me? Seriously. I get it. You know, it beats an alligator. What would be fun is to see Zeke and an alligator going at it. Because Zeke's smart. He's got a little attitude. Florida, you got a tough life there. Just when you think everything's cool, you're relaxed, everything's good, boom. Zeke comes out of nowhere and starts tearing it apart. Uh, Interesting stuff, folks. When you think about the human project, which is what we try to do on this show, you're you're throwing a curve all the time. So now all of a sudden you're just a cop in Sanford, Florida, and you've got to understand not only how to handle someone with a gun and, you know, how to use your taser properly, how to pull someone over – how to talk down a domestic dispute, but you also got to deal with a monkey. And we sit there and we wonder, what the heck? By the way, also from the Florida files, a woman clobbered her live-in boyfriend in the face with a pooper scooper. During an early morning confrontation in their apartment, Megan Smith, 27, was arrested for battery 
around 5 a.m. Monday when an argument about living arrangements with Victor uh, with the victim, Alexander Buck, allegedly turned physical. Police charged that Smith picked up a pooper scooper and hit the victim in the face with it multiple times. The pooper scooper strikes... Uh, knocked Buck's glasses off his face and left him with multiple abrasions to his left eyebrow and forehead. During the police questioning, Smith reportedly copped to striking Buck with the scooper, which is used to handle cat litter. She stated that she hit him because the victim would not stop arguing with her. (laughs) Hey, do not make me get the scooper. Crazy. That's the Florida file. Florida, you're still representing. And you might be hit by a little hurricane, a little uh, rain from the East Coast today. Anyway, folks, life ain't easy. But if you thought you had it bad, at least you didn't wake up 5 a.m. with a fight over a pooper scooper, right? Could be worse. Or a monkey going through your mail. By the way, if you're missing your mail, check the neighbors. Maybe you've got a monkey loose. We're going to take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world and get you through this crazy thing we call life. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. And top of the morning to you. It's Wednesday morning. Mm. Tons of fun, a new day, and a whole new set of uh, information and topics for you. Today we will be interviewing um, film writer uh, Cinco Paul. And you may have heard of Cinco. He is the uh, writer that wrote the the series Despicable Me, Despicable uh, Me 2, and also Horton Hears a Who. He's going to be joining us um, Really, uh, a very talented writer and is going to be just, we're going to pick his brain and talk about writing, but also kind of the creative process. How do you how do you keep up? I mean, that's a pretty good list of, of movies. And if you, um, man, you got that in your repertoire, you've, uh, you've already hit some success. We'll be talking to him in just a few minutes, Cinco Paul. Um, and also, uh, you know, we're going to be giving you the tools, the information you need. For the human project, every single one of us on this earth trying to make it, trying to survive, everyone's different. We could go into the details and just talk news all day long, but what we want to do is give you the information on this show that uh, is additive to your life, uh, that makes your life a little bit, um, I guess, easier to live, hopefully the tools to live longer and love stronger. Holy cow, Hurricane Joaquin, Joaquin, they're getting some really cool names now for hurricanes, right? It used to be Katrina. Uh Uh-huh. Now it's Joaquin. Have they had a Matthew? No, they should. They should, though, yeah. I feel like I'm more of a tornado. Wait till we get the M's. It may say you could be next. Yeah, I doubt it. No. (laughs) Yeah, it's just not. It's not an interesting name. Yeah. But it does, not to brag, mean gift from God. (laughs) That's what my mom says. (laughs) 
that's what she oh, said. Oh, that, that's just from your mom? That's yeah. not official? No, no, no. My mom – no, that is official. But my mom said, yeah, you are a gift from God. By the way, You're the Kathy, only son, right? That's it. Of I course. am the I'm the beloved child of <laughs> – Do you want me to look it up real quick? Just no, to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. It's a gift from God for sure. Okay. Oh, he's – okay. He's spawn of – No, not Spawn of Darkness. No. No. <laughs> okay, there's, a, there's another one. What was that? Pit of – Despair. Despair. No, no, that's different. Okay, that's... I'm not saying gift <laughs> many, from God. How, oh yeah, keep looking. It's there. <laughs> it's down the list. By the way, Kathy, you made uh, my mom's top ten list. I did. She's like, I like Kathy. Oh wow, I'm so. I'm pleased. like, mom, you haven't even met her. <laughs> yeah, wait till you She's meet her, and then I made so I made dip to the top. She 20. likes you a lot. Oh, I'm so happy. So if you pass the mom test, that's half the battle. That oh, isn't that so true? She, uh, how's your mother? You know, she's struggling a little bit. Is yeah, she? she's having tests uh, for blood clot in her legs, so we can't quite figure it out. You can't yeah. mess with blood no, clots. No, you can't. She goes back in this morning, and hopefully we'll figure something out. So You know what it might mean, that you need to play more tennis with mom. Yeah, well, she's using a walker, so she probably couldn't play very well. Yeah. Maybe we could put the tennis balls on her walker, oh, yeah, and, and that might help a little bit. Yeah. But Once that's we like, get that, that's That's oh, why if you play tennis when you're young, sign. keep the balls, because you may need them later <laughs> you for your walker. You need them on your walker, yes. So you don't scratch up the sad? floor. That's sad. That's so sad. hard. You know, when your parents get to that age, it's tough. It's but you really know what? Tough. I think it's good for you in a way, because you could you can school her in tennis. Yeah, I could probably do that. Just a little passing yeah, just shot. A little, yeah. We may be playing pickleball instead oh, of tennis. Love pickleball. I do too. Isn't that a great that sport? That is the fun I, sport. As soon as we hit it big, I'm going to buy a pickle court. Yeah. Because it doesn't take up as much space. <laughs> it doesn't. The first time I played, I have, you know, you're so used to to that the tennis yeah. ball. You don't have to hit it that hard. But the pickleball, you really have to hit it hard yeah. for it to go anywhere. Which is so great. So I was just barely, it was only going about a foot. And I thought, wow, this is hard. But I love it. It's fun. Do you play ping pong too? I love ping pong. I watched a video. Tell me what you feel about this. Do you, okay. I watched a video of a dad mm-hmm. uh, playing ping pong with his son, and he lost. So the son had to take his shirt off uh-huh. and turn around. Oh, no. And then the son would hit – or the dad, whoever loses, the other person gets to hit a ping pong ball at their back. Oh, I thought you were going to say the paddle. Oh, the ping pong ball. That wouldn't be that bad. Yeah. It, Depending then, on where you hit you know, it, I but guess. Some people are like, that's abuse. <laughs> Not the paddle would be abuse for sure. And then the people that knew the kid were like, Harder. Hit him harder. It's funny. My son, his letter this week from his mission mm-hmm. in Japan, He, I guess they have a ping pong night. And so he's yeah. like the only white guy. So he's Is he like, really? It's like, let's Because he's in Japan. Guy. Right. And they're oh, good. they're yeah, way so good. So my son's pretty good. Is he? he? Yeah, he's a good player. So he Did goes he play up. tennis in nope, school? No, he was ping pong. He, we had a ping pong table downstairs and we played all the time. And he's good. Oh, he's my really good. Heavens. So yeah, it's like uh, beat the white man night. Yeah, beat the white yeah. man. The Japanese line up one by one. <laughs> and I'm sure they're so good he probably gets beat handily, but I haven't heard that yet. That is cool. Yeah. That's good stuff. Uh, yeah, you can't have enough ping pong or pickleball. Pickleball. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, Kathy, take us to the headlines. What's going on around the country? Good morning, everyone. Russia has begun airstrikes targeted at ISIS forces in Syria, and at least 27 people have reportedly been killed. This morning, Russian lawmakers voted unanimously to give President Vladimir Putin authority to use his nation's troops in that country by air, no ground troops. Putin is working on behalf of Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad, but it's not clear if the airstrikes targeted ISIS or other forces opposed to the dictator. A temporary funding measure that would keep the government 
appointment open past the midnight deadline is expected to get President Obama's desk sometime today. The bill reportedly fails to defund Planned Parenthood that conservatives were hoping for. Both the House and Senate are scheduled to vote on the stopgap measure today, a bill that would give them 10 weeks to negotiate a more wide-ranging budget deal for the next 12 months. Things got heated at a House Oversight Committee meeting yesterday. Planned Parenthood President Cecil Richards was questioned about the Women's Health Organization and if it profits from selling fetal tissue. Why do you need federal dollars? You're making a ton of dough. We don't make any profit off of federal money. Planned Parenthood has been under attack since secretly recorded videos purportedly show its employees negotiating the sale of fetal tissue for profit. Conservatives are calling for the federal government to defund the organization, which receives about $450 million annually from federal programs. Georgia's only woman on death row was executed last night by lethal injection. Kelly Gissendanner was convicted for conspiring with her boyfriend to have her husband killed back in 1997. The 47-year-old was put to death despite last-minute appeals and a plea from Pope Francis. Atlanta Archbishop Wilton Gregory talked about why the Pope got involved. He was certainly watching any cases that might be uh, on the horizon. This, I suspect, would be the first such case. Gissendanner was the first woman to be put to death in that state in 70 years. Her boyfriend, Gregory Owen, who stabbed the woman's husband to death, accepted a plea deal and was sentenced to life without parole. A secret meeting reportedly took place between Pope Francis and Kentucky County Clerk Kim Davis during his trip to the U.S. Davis was jailed recently after refusing to give marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Kim Davis was very, very pleased and really, frankly, overwhelmed with the fact that she could meet with Pope Francis and felt that he was genuinely concerned, a very caring and warm individual, and uh, was very much at home uh, in the time frame that she was able to meet with him. According to that, excuse me, that was Davis's attorney, Matt Staver. According to the U.S. National Hurricane Center, tropical storm Joaquin strengthened into a Category 1 hurricane this morning. The hurricane is packing winds of 75 miles per hour and is currently 250 miles east of the Bahamas. Even if the hurricane does not reach landfall, areas from Maine to North Carolina are expecting heavy rain and flooding this week. And Matt, do you like pizza? Love it. Do you blot the top of your pizza before eating it? You know what? No, I see people doing that. You're not a blotter? I'm not a blotter, but that uh, that just doesn't seem right. <laughs> well, researchers conducted a study yeah. with a slice from a 14-inch Domino's pepperoni pizza mm. and found that blotting is a good idea. How good? Dabbing one slice cuts 40 calories and four and a half grams of fat. Dabbing one slice. Right. 40 calories. Yeah, four and a half grams of fat. Wow. Yeah. Any idea how many pounds of pizza Americans eat every year? Hmm. 10 million. (laughs) Yeah, kind of close. 23 pounds. Holy cow. Or 87 slices per year. Do you eat that many? Uh, I will plead the fifth on that. Blotting, however, can ex- uh, when you take the grease off, it can save so many calories that those 87 slices can be more like eating 66 slices or about two pounds worth of calories cut from your diet. Wow. If you just blot. How many pounds was it again of pizza that we eat a year? 23 pounds. <laughs> Which is amazing because I think uh, our, my family eats a lot more than that. No, it's not. Probably uh, No. But 87 slices per child? No. So you figure what? You eat maybe, what, two slices per two, every time you get yeah, a pizza? Yeah, two per day So that's times five like days, six days a week. So that's a year 12, that you would order. Uh, yeah. Wow, that's a lot of pizza. 
I love pizza, but pizza I don't is. eat nearly that much. Do you, but I'm going to start blotting. Yes, and blotting, four and a half grams of fat per slice. I'm not a pepperoni person. <laughs> no. That right there is a ton of fat. But. You know what's interesting, though? The word blotter mm-hmm. or blot, mm-hmm. what does that remind you of? There, there I'm thinking was, of like ink. There used to be a commercial that said – and like what was it? Uh, it, was a, it was a diaper commercial. Like stick in a blotter. Oh. And they would always put blue dye in right. the diaper. Do you remember right. those days? Yes, I do. So when you're sitting there talking, all I can imagine is some <laughs> mom pulling a diaper out of her bag, a clean one, of course, yes, and of then course. blotting her kid's pizza. Yeah, not with the diaper, with that the would save, napkin. That would save a ton of uh, fat. Yeah, it's a ton of fat, two pounds. Would the pizza taste the same? I think so. Yeah. There's there's a company here that has the best pizza, but mm. it is so greasy. I won't name the name, okay. but literally – you I, you could like soak up an entire napkin on one piece. Ooh. Oh wow! Yeah, but you'll, I, I you'll, think that's a lot. Will you more say than, the name after? I, I'll tell you okay. off the air. Yeah, I'm sure you've probably had it. I bet I have. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you, you always bring up food. No, you make me so hungry. No, what time is it? It's oh, still early. It is still early. Ah. It's still breakfast time. Oh well, we'll go get a breakfast pizza. Yeah, well done, Kathy. So that's it, folks. Just blot your pizza. Save your life. And you know what? While you're at it, blot your neighbor's pizza. Next time you're at the pizzeria having a little pie, just reach over and say, hey, Larry, let me get that for you. And just blot his pizza with your napkin. See how that goes. Hey, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will be talking with a screenwriter, Cinco Paul, who you probably know best as uh, a minion and, the, and the, the writer of Despicable Me, Despicable Me, Despicable Me 2, Lorax, Horton Hears a Who. Do any of these sound familiar? We're going to get into the mind of a screenwriter, find out uh, how he maintains his creativity, where his ideas come from, and what leads to the success of these great films. Stick with me, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today uh, we are speaking with uh, Cinco Paul. He is a screenwriter that uh, you may have heard of, right? So have you ever heard of the movie Despicable Me or Despicable Me 2? How about the movie Horton Hears a Who or Lorax? These are all movies that uh, Cinco Paul has uh, had his hands in. He is uh, a screenwriter and... Um, graduate from, uh, I believe, the USC Film School. We're going to be talking to him right now about uh, what motivates a screenwriter and what leads to his success in these family-friendly movies. Cinco Paul, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you very Great. much. Glad to be here. You've been so honored to have you. This is, uh, for me, my kids love uh, Despicable Me, in fact, and we were just watching it again, and Despicable Me too. What what do you think, Cinco? Did you ever think this would be your future, your career? When you were growing up, did you love cartoons? You know, I I loved cartoons, I guess, more than that, I just loved movies. You know, I just, I kind of fell in love with movies by falling in love with the Marx Brothers initially. Yeah. 
and uh, it's kind of just spread to all types of movies. So from the time I was pretty little, like fourth grade or something like that, I had a little Super 8 camera and started making my own very lame little <laughs> movies. <laughs> just just for you and the family? Is that who'd watch um, it? Kind of. You know, we'd have screenings for the would neighborhood. You? Sure. And, and the, yeah, the neighbors were very kind and would <laughs> actually come. But I'd use all their kids, you know. Yeah. So that would guarantee an audience. But that's amazing. I mean, I, I have a son that's very, you know, into YouTube and making videos and loves it. Boy, so to have a role model that I can say, go look at Cinco Paul. He's he's killing it. He's doing pretty great uh, there. It's 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 pretty neat. Talk about how you do it. I mean, I know you don't uh, always write alone. In fact, Ken Dario has been a partner with you in a lot of these successes. H- how do you guys end up making an idea work? Boy, that is that is a very good question. Yeah, I you know in all these movies I've teamed up with Ken. We teamed up, I think, in 98 and have been writing together ever mm. since. And, you know, I think, like, one of the, the keys is that we never write a movie for kids. You know, we're, we're only trying to entertain each other pretty much. <laughs> and that, that really and, makes sense, though, because Despicable Me, it's very mature, yet kids can love it, too. I mean, but the, the, some of the humor is adult. Yeah, that's the, I mean, that's the idea, because you... You know, you want the whole family to go see the movie together, and you don't want the parents to feel like killing themselves <laughs> right. through the movie. So, so you know, really, we found that the key is just to make a movie, the movie that we would want to see, you know, and, and be part of. And we feel like the kids will come along. And, you know, kids are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. And, and so we try to raise the bar. <laughs> In that regard, did, did you did you think the Despicable Me franchise would be as successful as it is? I mean, it's it's big. Oh, no way! There's no way anyone could have predicted it. It's we, you know, we were just hoping that was the summer of you know Toy Story three yeah. coming out, and we were just afraid we were just going to be completely crushed, you know. <laughs> and and I remember them trying to get any people to do a, a toy deal. You know, for us, right? Like no one, no wanted one wanted to make it. minions. No one was interested in Are you making kidding? toy minions. Yeah, and uh, and if that's changed, as you can, yeah, see. <laughs> the minions are everywhere. But now. you, you were first of all, tell us where did the minion idea come from? Yeah, you know, we have to really give most of the credit for that to the directors. It's Chris Renault and Pierre Coffin because we wrote the Gru had minions. Yeah, and our initial concept was that they would be kind of heavies, you know, sort of big, scary minions uh-huh. that were still sort of stupid and yeah, know, ogre-ish, yeah. comical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big oafs. And then they had this vision of these little yellow pill guys. <laughs> and, uh, and so then once we knew what those were, you know, obviously we wrote to that. But uh, how, how do you write when they don't speak? Or blame for that. Uh, how, 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 do you, you how do you write for a minion that doesn't speak English? Yeah, well, you know, it, in the writing, obviously we write the action, too, yeah, and right. what people do physically, but a lot of times in the Minion, we'll write just the English for them, for the intent, okay. and then the directors will, will translate that into their <laughs> their Minionese. That's cool. Well, and it's uh, like Steve Carell, so you've worked with some other people, Steve Carell, yeah. and you have a really neat story about that I read about Steve Carell and his son and the Minions. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, it was after, you know, the his his kids are getting a little older now. I think they're maybe 12 and 14, but that when we were recording Despicable Me 2, his son was pretty young and his his son really loved the movie, the first movie and loved the Minions and he wanted to come in and record himself as a Minion. <laughs> and so it was really sweet that like Steve, you know, who is Steve oh, Carell. Yeah. Could could Johnny maybe come in and <laughs> you know pretend to record as That's a minion great. and we'll, of course whatever you want so it was a really great moment to see his little son come in and start doing a minion voice and have Steve watch him you know the proud papa right oh, how powerful <laughs> his little boy did that well and I guess too it it humanizes these actors and you in your years have had a chance to work with a lot of actors who who stands out as some of the the actors you've you've had a chance to work with who 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 has impressed you well i mean obviously Carell is is amazing and he's just such a good guy all around so he's really impressed me but but we've had a chance to work with you know we're we're in the studio recording sessions cuz they it's nice to have us there cuz we'll pitch out ideas uh-huh. so we've gotten to meet you know Julie Andrews one of my wow. idols and Carol Burnett, you know, with, with Horton and, uh, you know, some other great people we've worked with, like Kristen Wiig, love her. <laughs> She's and, great. And Helms has been great. And, um, yeah. What's, just, do, do you ever just sit the there, do you just sit there and wonder, wow, this is cool. I mean, you've got, you've got like the job of all jobs. Yeah, every, every once in a while, Ken and I do turn to each other and say, like, <laughs> right? <laughs> this, is, this is pretty amazing, especially when I think about, like, little Cinco, you know, the little kid with yeah. the Super 8 camera and, like, having these dreams of of making movies. And then the fact that it actually happened, I feel really fortunate. Mm. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. Well, and did, did it start then, so after your little... Uh, movie career in fourth grade and up. What? Where did you go to college? What did you study? How did you get the skill set to be a screenwriter? Well, I, you know, I went to Yale for undergrad, okay. and you know, my four years there, I was an English major, but I did a lot of writing while I was there, and I think that was important. Then I ended up. Uh, getting my M master's in screenwriting from USC. And mm. that's where I really learned about structure and, you know, how to, how to create a good story and, and keep things moving and how to actually write a, a real screenplay. And yeah. that kind of launched me from SC into, to a, you know, actually making a little bit of money off of this right off the bat. Did. Um, and then I, I hear you, you had to find a creative way to to get people to listen to your pitches. So you and Ken like would go in and use another one of your gifts. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, yeah, it's true that music has always been a huge part of my life and for a long time I kind of wanted to be a pop musician. Did you? And uh when Ken and I first met, we formed a band. So so when we would go out, you know, a lot of um early on in our career what we we're doing is you go to pitch meetings. And you meet with these studio executives and you pitch them your take on a story or your own original story. And you want to make those interesting. So uh, we would do a lot of singing in these, I guess. It's, <laughs> like Broadway singing? Like we, like what would you do? Just yeah, bust? We well, we, 
wouldn't say like, and this is a story about a guy who works at the, you know, we wouldn't sing the whole pitch. (laughs) But at some point during the pitch, you know, if the actual, the actual characters would be singing to each other. Okay. So I guess you could call, I mean, it was usually pop songs, but we did have one executive say like a pitch from Cinco and Ken is like dinner theater. (laughs) So I think that was a compliment. I I guess it was. I mean, that felt good. (laughs) That felt really yeah. good. Isn't that funny, though, that you – did you ever get them looking at you like, what the heck? These guys are weird. Yeah. we. It, it was a little risky because – They've seen everything. Know, <laughs> yeah. You, just, you really have to go for it. But generally, it was successful because we would do it comedically. Yeah, you know, yeah. We weren't – we weren't trying to earnestly like impress them with our singing. Which, that would have been a mistake. <laughs> yeah. But, but generally, it when you know we've had certainly some bad pitch meetings in our careers, but usually the music was a nice icebreaker. Well, and for this genre and this, you want your I'm assuming you'd want your your screenwriters comfortable, a little bit silly, but able to deliver. I mean, this is ideal. That's why I guess they want you on set, too, because you could probably ad-lib something that would really make the movie. That's Well, yeah, that's why they do want us, you know, in, in those sessions. And what we, we did find out early on is that people hire other people that they want to be with and okay. hang out with. Yeah. You know? And, and so, so one thing I had to learn early on is not to fight all the notes because, you know, one of the, the worst things that you have to deal with as a screenwriter is you get all these notes. Uh-huh. Right? Fix this, do yeah, yeah, and it's like here's what's wrong. You know, this would be the initial reaction, and so initially, like I would fight all of those because I knew I was right. You know, and and but no one wants to work with that person, right? <laughs> and so we had to learn to let's be the fun, friendly guys, and uh, and adaptable, and helped. yeah, yeah, be the guys that want just want to make everything better and you know be team players and and that certainly helped. So you're not the diva screenwriters, the Devo screenwriters. No, I don't know if there are many diva <laughs> yeah, screenwriters. That's probably true. They're not. Huh? Those, I guess, we leave to the actors. It's a pretty humbling uh, career, oh, I would say. No, but, totally. Uh, <laughs> I've written a book, and it's there's nothing more humbling than because you're vulnerable, right? You're naked. This yeah, is yeah. these are your ideas. These are your words. Yeah. In fact, I just went to a screening of a movie yesterday, and I thought, how vulnerable can you be sitting in the launch of a new movie? With everybody ready to pick it apart. Yes. Does that drive you yes. crazy? Or is, is it already vetted by the time it, you're, you're done with it, Cinco? Well, yes. Yeah, certainly by that point, you know, you have a pretty good idea of how the, the movie's going to be received, you know, by the, by the time it comes out. But still, you, you don't know. And it is, you know, I, some people say they don't read reviews. Yeah. Like those people are nuts or liars because I obsessively read every review you know and so then and then you read things and it they can be hurtful and just and they sting and you feel like oh Mm. man it can it can bring you down and make you feel like i am a horrible writer yeah right i really i really blew it with this one and (laughs) and uh you have to just keep fighting that is it's cool. It's cool to hear inside your brain, Cinco, because you're like, I mean, to, to think that the writers of Despicable Me 2 kill, that killed it at the box office, um, that you have these moments like, I stink. I'm horrible. That's just human. 
That's cool. That is true. Uh, let's take a break. Again, we're speaking. We're speaking with Cinco Paul, the screenwriter, um, along with uh, Ken Dario of a, a bunch of movies you've heard of: The Lorax, Horton Hears a Who, Despicable Me, One and Two. We'll come back more with Cinco Paul, trying to find out uh, what's his motivation. Where, do, where does he get his ideas? How does he handle the pressure of it all? And uh, why is he wanting to make movies? For families, we'll talk about it. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is screenwriter Cinco Paul, uh, who uh, is responsible for some movies that I know you have uh, seen, heard, or been impacted by. If you have kids, there's no doubt you've somehow been touched by the work of Cinco Paul. Uh, the, the movies Despicable Me, Despicable Me 2, The Lorax, Horton Hears a Who, just to name a few of the great work that uh, Cinco Paul and Ken Dario have put out there. Uh, Joining us again, Cinco Paul, thanks for being here and just letting us uh, get to know you. It is my pleasure. This this is really cool, and I know my son's going to just eat this interview up um, because he he does. He he loves – in fact, yesterday he said that. He goes, I want to make movies, Dad. And, you know, sometimes that's the dad's worst nightmare. We're thinking, oh, (laughs) geez, here we go. You're going to be a struggling waiter in Los Angeles. Yes. To my parents' credit, they did nothing but encourage me, which they must have been very concerned, I'm sure, <laughs> because they were, you know, insurance agents and, you know, <laughs> movies and music. That wasn't their idea of a, a very solid career, but they never discouraged me, so yeah. that was nice. Well, you also took, I guess, a smart route. You, you went to Yale. I mean, that's going to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. English degree that okay. At least we got an English degree from Yale. Then you get into a master's program that I'm sure is super competitive, and uh, you you did it. Yeah, I think it was that was my plan because you know I always was pretty good in school, so I thought I'm going to take the academic route. Yeah, <laughs> to becoming a, a filmmaker, and and that worked out for me. You know, yeah, that's Who your knows, skill you set. Know, everybody has their own path, but yeah. that's certainly the one that worked for me. Did um, So do you sense, is there a formula? I mean, I know part of your formula is just you want to make people laugh. Um, yeah. And really, the, the grown-ups, because I think that's smart, too. If you can make the grown-ups laugh, they're going to bring their kids to the movie. I've, I've slept yeah. through many a movie with my children, and yours are always movies that I actually feel like they were actually written for me. Ah. And I don't know if that's because you're writing for people my age. Uh, 12 in mental strength and acuity. (laughs) But do you have a formula? I mean, you know, the the formula has very little to do with with laughs because usually you feel like the laughs can come. Like the laughs and the comedy is generally the easiest part. The hardest part is, you know, creating a character that someone wants to be with for an hour and a half Mm. and, and, and creating a story that people can really get invested in and uh, we recently, Ken and I just put a film festival on, and 
uh, we showed Despicable Me as part of the festival, and still at the end, you know, a bunch of people had tears in their eyes. And wow. that's almost the, that's kind of the, the prize that you're shooting for with these movies, to, is to emotionally engage people. Yeah. And then, if once you do that, then it's generally, you know, easy to, not easy, but uh, easier to get the, the laughs and to weave the comedy into it. Yeah, and you don't you don't ever come off as preachy. I mean, some of these movies could come off as preachy, but yours is more subtle use of just you know principles and a really good feeling or spirit. Yeah, I mean that's what we go for. We've always wanted to make movies about something. You know, we don't want them to just be entertaining. We usually want some sort of message. And you know, Despicable Me is about how love can transform an evil person into a good person yeah. and and, uh, and you know people some people may have disagreed with you as terms that they felt like Lorax was preachy but you know the, the book from Dr. Seuss is pretty right preachy, so it is it was that was kind of unavoidable but but generally you try to yeah you you want to entertain but but have the movie be about something what is that like? People walk away with something. Yeah, with a real, with a real, almost a, a feeling, really, and a, and yeah, maybe a yeah. conviction. And I want to be a better person, uh-huh. you know, in, in a, this in a small way, not that we really feel like our movies are going to transform the world, right? But, but you want to do a little something, you know? Yeah. yeah. But they they actually, but then they do, and like that is exactly the discussion we would have with our kids after Despicable Me. That how can mm-hmm. this ogred, mean man, horrible man, turn into such a good guy because of the love of three girls. You know, it's powerful. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's it like working with, like, the, the Dr. Seuss's family and the rights yeah. behind those books? Because that's got to be hard for you to fill in the entire story behind a book that has become so popular. Yeah, that's, both of those were challenges because, you know, the book's, have maybe 40 pages, something yeah. like that, and, uh, and you're going to have to expand it in order to make it into a movie. And when you do that, people are going to be upset. Some, mm-hmm. You know, not everybody, but some people are going to be upset and feel like you're destroying their childhood, you know? <laughs> right. And so, I mean, the thing that was helpful to us is that, that uh, you know, my favorite Dr. Seuss book is The Lorax, and Ken's favorite book maybe of all time is Horton Hears a Who. So we came into those with a real love for the books and, you know, and a desire to, to, to be true to Dr. Seuss mm. and, and try to continue his vision. But, you know, it is a challenge filling in the, filling in the, the spaces. I think with Horton we had an easier time because that had uh, a real nice natural three-act structure to it. Whereas the Lorax we found we really had to expand on either side, like what happened before the book you know, started and right. then what happened once the book was was over. So that was a little bit more of a challenge. Would Would you rather Would you rather take a story from a book like the Lorax, or would you rather um, have somebody hand you a concept and then you get to run with it? Uh, what would you and Ken rather do? Concept. I mean, I will say that it it, it was like a. A real joy and an honor to work on both of those Seuss movies, just because such oh, a big fan. Yeah, but but you do feel a lot of pressure. I think I think you know it was probably more fun working on the Despicable movies because yeah. that was not laid on top of it. Right. 
Well, why yeah. why did you not? Because you didn't write. You neither of you wrote. Were the writers on um, Minions, right? Yeah, you know, uh, mostly it was because we were so busy with Despicable Me Two and this movie coming out uh, next year, uh, Secret Life of Pets. Mm. And so, <laughs> because of that, we just felt like we just didn't have enough time to <clears throat> devote to all. You know. Yeah. To the Minion movie. So so did uh, this new movie coming out, Secret Life of Pets, tell us, can you tell us yeah. anything about that? Yeah, that uh, really excited about is uh, it's about a group of pets in New York City. <laughs> and it just explores the idea of what do our pets do when we're away. Oh, great. And we've got Louis C.K. <laughs> as the, the main dog. And I love him. He's a genius. Yeah. And then we have Eric Stone Street from Modern Family. And then we have, as another dog, and then Kevin Hart, uh, who's in this part is just genius. He plays this this little fluffy bunny who wants to destroy humankind. <laughs> he's evil. An evil fluffy he's, bunny. Yeah, he's evil. He leads a group called the Flushed Pets, who are, you know, <laughs> yeah. very bitter feelings towards humans and want to wipe them out. <laughs> and and so it's basically these two dogs who go on this adventure and and you know, run afoul of the flushed pets. And <laughs> From beginning to end, how long, how long is that taking? How long is Secret Life of Pets going to take to have it to, ready to release? Yeah, from, from the moment when we first started talking about it, probably four years. Wow. Yeah. That's, and that's the thing about these animated movies. You know, it takes a long time to make them. So it can wear you down. Oh, I bet. We do, we do occasionally long for the days of, writing live action movies, you know, because that's just a much faster process. Yeah. What, uh, I, I wonder, do you see a day that you will just go do a live action movie or TV show or something, series? Yeah, yeah. Ken and I have talked about that, that I think ultimately we want to do that. We want to, you know, write and direct a, a li- a, like a little live yeah. action movie or or maybe branch into TV or do something where there's a little more immediacy. Yeah. Yeah, you get to put it you don't out. Have to wait four years. Yeah. Does uh, what? What is your day like, day in and day out, Cinco? You wake up. I'm sure you have your massage. You get your uh, nails done. Yeah. <laughs> what What yeah. does it look it's like? A pretty sweet life as a screenwriter. <laughs> no, just you know, we have set hours. We generally like eight to four. Yeah. And we're writing eight to four, but sometimes you know we're we're going into meetings. Where we're we're looking at kind of the version, the animated version of dailies. Yeah. Okay. What the storyboards are, and sort of looking like right now we're we're deep into Despicable Me three, so a lot of our time is spent looking at the storyboards, and and uh, we're doing a lot of recording sessions now. We've been recording uh, Steve Carell in a couple sessions, and the girls, and we have Kristen Wiig next oh, week, and and how fun uh, is that? So Super fun. That you know, that's the more glamorous side yeah. of our life. Mostly, it's just Ken and I in a room, you know, at our computers. But <laughs> what do you do? How do you balance family? How do you how do you make sure you still you know take care of the family? Well, that's that's been the great thing about this career because we really you know you work eight to four, you're spending you're available to right to be with your family for for most of the day and. And also, we've had the freedom to, you know, volunteer for schools. You know, I was the library dad for many, many years because <laughs> I was great. able to, to, to take off 
work to go do that. So it's been a really ideal career for you know to to have a family and yeah. to be there for your kids. I also know you nice. guys you guys are very uh you're religious, you're 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 faithful guys. What what is that um how does how does your faith, your belief uh in God influence your work or does it? Yeah, I'd say it absolutely does just in that you know I, we've always wanted to to do our best to make movies that everybody can enjoy together, yeah. you know, that all ages can enjoy together, which is, you know, there's actually a lot more of that than there ever was before as far as movies go, you know. Yeah. For years and years, it was like, if you wanted the, to see a movie with the whole family, it was the, that one Disney movie every year, <laughs> you know, and, and now there, there are a lot more of them. So I think that's, that's impacted us, and there's just also the messages that we want to portray in our movies. You know, the Despicable Me movies are all about family and the value of family, and and uh, you know, just the first movie is kind of about the fact that every dad has to, every man has to set aside the villain in him in order to be a dad, <laughs> to and, not not harm the child. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so I think that's had a, had a big impact. And, you know, a lot of times people ask, like, oh, in Hollywood, you know, mm. it's evil, and how do you survive there? And I have to tell you, we've never had an issue, and it's just we found Hollywood to be filled with good people. And, and uh, I, I think Hollywood gets a bad rap. I mean, obviously there are bad right. eggs in every industry. But you find and, what you're looking uh, for, and you guys – are looking for the positive. Yeah, yeah. That's what we try to do. And amazingly, it appears. Hey, um, just as we wrap up, any advice that you would give, um, I guess, to anybody, really, about following your passion, doing what you love? Yeah, I think that, you know, I always, from a pretty early age, knew I wanted to make music, make movies, you know, be part of that. And I just spent so much of my time, you know, obviously I spent some time just sitting in front of the TV or playing video games, but so much of my time was spent pursuing that, you know, whether it was writing songs or writing scripts and making little movies. And so I think you just, if, if you want something, you've got to put in the time and effort to, and that'll get you better and better at it. And one, one piece of advice I give screenwriters a lot is that, you know, so many people who want to be screenwriters, and, and it's more and more every day, it appears, like, you yeah. know, just have their one script, and they think that's their ticket. And if that's your attitude, you're not a writer. Right. You know, a, a writer will write one script and then not be satisfied and write another one and then write another one. And, and, and if you keep doing that and keep writing more and more scripts, then, then you'll become a writer. And if you're a good one you know, people will want to hire you. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. And two, you've got, now you have this huge archive of ideas, you know, and depth. You've, you've thought deeper. Um, yeah, powerful. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the more you write, the more you learn and the better you get at it. And, and I, it sort of pains me to see so many people who think that if they write one script, that makes them a screenwriter. Or <laughs> right. That's going to be their ticket. And it's, it's not. Yeah. You know, it's, the odds are no one is ever going to buy that script. So uh, you have to just become a writer. That should be your goal. Cinco Paul, appreciate you, man. Thanks for the work you do. And keep uh, it up. you got to know people are watching and uh, they're loving what you do. So keep up the great work. 
Oh, thank you so much, Matt. You bet, Cinco. Good stuff. Uh, wow, honestly, folks, there's there's good in the world, and even in Hollywood, for heaven's sakes, it's not all bad. And it, part of it's it's we make it what we want it to be. Cinco, Paul, go check out. Uh, I'm excited to go see the new movie, Secret Life of Pets, in a few years, I guess, when it comes out. Good stuff. We'll take a break, come back, uh, do a little Coach's Corner, wrap this second hour of the Matt Townsend Show up. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Isn't it cool to have somebody that just has passion uh, about what they do? There's something really interesting when you get to interview somebody like Cinco Paul who has had a lot of success, but it doesn't impact like his ego about it. He's he's a pretty humble guy. He just loves what he's doing. And he, he does it not because it makes him famous and powerful and he even he he's sitting there even noticing yeah so we get to be with in studio with Steve Carell and Kristen Wiig and you know that's the glamorous part of this deal but most of the time he's just in his studio just I mean writing um there's something powerful about successful people that are also centered in their principles and their values their family matters he he was the librarian dad are you kidding me that's that's awesome. And really, when you think about building your life, he, he gave us some great advice. People want to work. Uh, people hire the people they want to work with. So does it matter about, you know, the Yale credentials? I'm pretty sure most people don't look at him and think, oh, yeah, he's gone. He went to Yale, so let's hire him. They think that, oh, he wrote Despicable Me 2 and 3 and – the Lorax, and he helped create the identity of these minions, and Horton hears a who. Okay, let's hire him. But more importantly, they they also see that he's easy to work with, that he's flexible, that he's willing to reevaluate what he's thinking. So ask yourself, are you very good at those things? Are you easily hireable? Are you the kind of guy that people want to work with? Do you go out of your way to make it uh, an enjoyable work environment? That's probably going to be one of your greatest advantages. We know in the literature and in the in the research around um, success and and effectiveness that your emotional intelligence is a serious predictor of how effective and successful you'll be in life. Your ability to manage your emotions. And to engage and work with the emotions of others is a, is a true indicator of success. So when you're thinking about it, one of the big lessons I learned from Cinco is be who you are, be original, be, I mean, be authentic to who you are, and also be willing to be flexible. You can't always assume that your way is the only way because you wrote the book. Now, you can, but... It also might not lead to success. Also, I learned let's not get so caught up in the diva role. It's so amazing to me just watching those Bridezilla shows, man. You make the bride 
the guest of the show. I mean, you make her the the queen of the day, and holy Hannah, can you imagine if she was always the queen? These bridezillas would be scary. Cinco Paul, good stuff. It's what our goal is to help you see the good in the world. How often do you watch those bridezilla shows? Every night. Okay. That's how I go to bed. Little bridezilla and some warm milk. Helps you get your diva on. That's right. It helps me know how to treat my team. We'll take a break, my friends. That's hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll come back a whole new hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Boy, have we got a good one for you. Of course, why not? Because today, September 30th, is Ask a Stupid Question Day. Do you have a stupid question for me, Kathy? Um, what is a stupid, stupid question? question? That's a stupid question. That is a stupid question. What did you have for lunch yesterday? Funny thing, don't remember. No, I do remember. <laughs> have you ever had one of these tuna cracker packs? No, but I've seen them. Are they good? Yeah, but it's like a 20-step process. You know what I mean? Yeah, that kind of looked too complicated. I just need yeah. something to peel open and have it all ready for me. Right. It wasn't ready? No, so I open the, the I open the lid of the thing. Oh, come on! And that's the first thing I say. <laughs> oh, come on. Are you kidding me? Then there was like 12 things that fell out, and there's like a six-step process. Did you have to mix it all together? Yes. The tuna, and then, then put it on yes. the cracker? Oh, And so if you want messy. pickle relish, you got to uh-huh. do that. <laughs> And you're mixing it in a little bowl that they conveniently made as part of the wrapping. But it's not mixed for you. You no. have to oh, see if it was all mixed together, that's much better. The worst thing I had to take a nap in the middle of my tuna. Because <laughs> it took so long to put together. Yeah, I told my wife. Well, that's good protein though. It, oh, it's great protein. Mm-hmm. But then interesting thing, it's weird because I just go in my little tiny office and just shut the door and eat my I mean, it took a half hour to make <laughs> make my tuna meal. But then you walk, you smell like it smells oh, weird. Oh, that is a bad smell. That really is. It's a bad smell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I should I should probably eat it in the cafeteria. I'm sure there's a rule I just violated and admitted on the radio. But <laughs> Uh-oh, Don's going to be coming yeah. in any second. Yeah. But I just get in my zen moment, you mm-hmm. know. And I don't I don't know. That's something you can invent though. Invent something that's easier, that's healthy and easy. Yeah. That's the, hard. Have you ever seen those protein I love those protein things that comes with like uh ch- chunks of turkey, almonds, and ooh. cheese. So you kind of get the good protein. And, yeah. yeah so I, that's nice and easy. That's easy. Then but you I just, don't have a ref- – I guess I could put it in the refrigerator. You just pour it down have... your gullet? You no, just... you eat them. Mm. Turkey and almonds together and then the cheese. I never... like protein and yeah. fat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know what I like to do after dabbing my pizza? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like to just keep that napkin. <laughs> and I just suck oh. on the – She taught us earlier that if you dab your pizza, you can save your life. Oh. Very, get well, the grease, close. get yeah. the puddles of grease mm-hmm. off. Save over four grams of fat per slice. Mm. That's a lot. That is. But that's a pepperoni pizza. So, yeah. you know, if you don't have the pepperoni, I'm sure that saves no. you a lot right there anyway. Yeah, I don't do, I do the all meat pizza. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how you dab that. <laughs> that's you, a lot of dabbing. Yeah, grab a mop if you're going to, sure. <laughs> if you're going to do the all meat pizza. Yeah. 
Um, interesting. Yeah. So today a pizza is mop. You could create that. Oh, don't get that away. <laughs> In fact, where's you, the patent? You need honey? to patent that. Write that down, <laughs> Benny. Patent uh, the uh, pizza mop, and we're going to actually, yeah, write that down. Patent that. Trademark that. We will mop your grease and save your heart. Is this a business idea or yes. just a copyright? Both. Okay. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so file it. Okay. I'll, I'll get that out by mm. today. The pizza mop. We have a patent attorney close by, don't we? Yeah. Okay. Oh, this is great. Yeah. We like to invent things on the show as well. <laughs> so today is Ask a Stupid Question Day. It's also Mud Pack Day. It's National Chewing Gum Day, which you know, you'd think wouldn't be a day. Oh, ben, I knew it was a day. Oh. Ben, shut your mouth when you chew, brother. <laughs> Oh, are you a mint gum person or I'm a bubble not. gum person? You know what I've been lately? I've been a mentholatum gum lately. Yeah, that's not good. Those, that doesn't taste very good. Ben, I love mint shut gum. shut your mouth, Ben. It's so good. <laughs> that is good gum. Are you a mint gummer? Uh-huh. I like mint gum. And I have to chew gum when I run. Cause really? So I can have, so I don't get a really dry mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Don't like don't you don't the bugs that fly in your mouth when you're running? <laughs> well, I'm usually in the treadmill, so oh, yeah. I, I don't have bugs in the house. That's right. Usually. By the way, it is National Women's Health and Fitness Day, good. so this See? is your day, mm-hmm. Kathy. Man, good stuff. It's a big day. Today we've got a great show for you coming up. Uh, David Meyer will be joining us. He's an associate professor of management and organizations at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, and he's going to be telling us about um, really how, how, to, how to create a stronger ethic and be more committed to your ethics, your morals, and to be an ethical leader, we'll be talking about ethical leadership with him. But uh, before we get there, let's get to the headlines with Kathy Aiken. Good morning, everyone. Just hours after Russian parliament gave President Vladimir Putin approval to use Russian troops, that nation's air force conducted strikes in Syria. The attack occurred near the city of Homs, where at least 27 people were reportedly killed. Russia is claiming its warplanes are bombing Islamic State positions in Syria. But a senior U.S. defense official has told Fox News the strikes are actually hitting the free Syria. Syrian army and other forces that are fighting against Bashar al-Assad. Congressional leaders are gearing up to begin budget talks today with the White House. The House and Senate are moving toward passing a stopgap measure that will stop a federal government shutdown when the fiscal year ends at midnight tonight. At a House Oversight Committee meeting yesterday, Planned Parenthood President Cecil Richards disputed charges that the organization profits from selling fetal tissue. Conservatives are trying to defund Planned Parenthood after videos were released of their employees purportedly negotiating sell of fetal tissue for profit. Planned Parenthood receives a third of its annual revenue from the federal government, $450 million annually. Yesterday, Congressman Jason Chaffetz of Utah accused the organization of spending a big chunk of its budget on non-health care expenses like huge parties, first-class travel, and lucrative salaries, including Richards, who makes over $500,000 a year. Chaffetz said if it's that kind of money is being spent, they don't need funding from taxpayers. Georgia's only woman on death row was executed last night by lethal injection, the first woman to be executed in that state in 70 years. Kelly Glissendanner was convicted for conspiring with her boyfriend to have her husband killed back in 1997. The execution took place despite several last-minute appeals, including a plea from Pope Francis. Meanwhile, Oklahoma is scheduled to execute Richard Glossop this afternoon. Glossop was convicted of arranging the murder of his boss. Four more inmates have execution dates nationwide in the next week. A secret meeting reportedly took place between the Pope and Kentucky County Clerk Kim Davis during his trip to the U.S. Davis was jailed recently after refusing to give marriage licenses to same-sex couples. 
The meeting uh, came, you know, from the Vatican itself. Pope Francis uh, had been uh, following the story of Kim Davis and obviously is very concerned about religious liberty, not just in the United States, but worldwide. And uh, an invitation came uh, from the Vatican to uh, have Kim Davis meet with the Pope. That was Davis's attorney, Matt Staver. Davis said the Pope thanked her for her courage and told her to stay strong. The 10-minute meeting reportedly took place in the Vatican Embassy in Washington. According to the U.S. National Hurricane Center, Tropical Storm Joaquin strengthened into a Category 1 hurricane this morning. The hurricane is packing winds of 75 miles per hour and is currently 250 miles east of the Bahamas. Here in the U.S., the East Coast is bracing for torrential rain and flooding this week. And Matt, a New York woman has admitted to stealing more than $13,000 in her mother's Social Security benefits recently. This 60-year-old woman, this really isn't that funny, but from Gloversville, kept her 93-year-old mother's decomposed body for over a year so she could cash her benefit checks. Her mother died from unknown causes, and police checking on the welfare of Hope Ruler found her decomposed body in her apartment. Oh, boy. The 60-year-old daughter lived in the apartment above. Mary Kirsting pleaded guilty yesterday to grand larceny and improper disposal of a body and faces six months in jail. Would you do that to your mother? Don't ask me questions. No. no way. Heck no. My mom. No way. I mean, way. how can you not smell that from a well, you mile thought tuna away? tuna fish was bad. Oh, Holy cow. Oh, my goodness. Well, and nobody else is noticing? I guess not. Maybe they. Maybe she covered up the smell or... I don't know how you can. How you can. You probably... I've never smelled the decomposed oh, body. You? Have you? Oh, yeah. Oh, when? I can't tell you. <laughs> It's a long story. No, when I was an EMT uh, on an ambulance. Oh, okay. We'd, there you go. Yeah. But that, it's a smell you'll never get out of your head. Mm. Have you ever just smelled roadkill? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that, but about like 10 that. times stronger. Yeah. But then again, like, hey, how's your, how's your mom doing? Oh, you know what? She's just, she's fine. She's slowing down a bit. She's wasting away. Oh, boo. It's so sad. Literally wasting away. She's sitting in her recliner downstairs. How awful is that? But, I mean, there's people that have died and sat in their chair for days. Or at work, they sat there for hours and nobody knows. Isn't that sad? Wouldn't that be sad if you died and alone and nobody knew? I want to die on the air. I want to die in the middle of the... Welcome to the match. Gunk. That's what I want. I mean, I know. It's not great but for everybody else. we won't let else. you decompose. We'll get you yeah. out quickly and put the next, next person in your chair you know, as fast that, as possible. What I'm afraid of is I, you guys would pose my body in weird <laughs> poses. Yeah, we'll take a few selfies first, and then you know, then we'll move you away. Isn't we'll call your wife. so sad? Yeah. We don't even respect mom enough. We just Mom was a check, really, is what mom yeah. was for that $13, lady. $13,000. Oh, that's, I'm just going to have to. Oh, come on! Rude. <laughs> that is just rude. Man, don't get any ideas, Ben. Thanks, You're Ka- a monster. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy, for for grossing us all out. Interesting stuff. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Dr. David Meyer will be joining us. Are you an ethical leader? Did you know that uh, the research shows ethical leaders create happier employees? If we know our boss is honest and true and ethical, we're we're going to work harder for that boss. So stick with us. We'll be speaking with Dr. David Meyer about some of his research out of the University of Michigan and the Ross School of Business there. Stick with us. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We're going to be talking about ethics.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with all of the pressures and the demands that come with being a business leader, you got to make ends meet, right? You got to show profitability. You got to keep your products moving out the back door. Many times it might be easy to uh, to maybe scrimp on your ethics, your morals, maybe lower some of your standards in order to, to get supposedly the job done. In fact, in the news right now, we're hearing a lot about uh, Volkswagen and some of the decisions they made uh, with 11 million cars where they basically uh, misled people on the actual um, emissions and, and abil- emission standard and the ability of these cars to hit certain emission standards. So ethics are in question when it comes to leadership in corporate America. Joining us today on the phone, Dr. David Meyer is an associate professor of management at uh, Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. And here's an interesting stat that he's brought up before in the past. He says, in the past decade, over 100 studies with more than 30,000 employees have consistently found that employees who believe their leader is ethical are happier. They're more committed, they perform better, and are more likely to be helpful to others and less likely to behave unethically. So we've asked him to come talk to us today a little bit about leadership and ethics. Dr. David Myers, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. You bet. Honored to have you. And uh, man, what do you? first of all, why is, I mean, is ethics an old idea and being ethical? I mean, are we in a new business age? Is it about the numbers, not the ethics? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, people often talk about this issue being more timely. Like you mentioned Volkswagen, and if we were to go back a little bit, people would talk about in the early 2000s, Enron. But the truth is if you look at articles on business ethics, the start of the article is very similar for the last 40 years. Huh. It's just a different company that's mentioned. Yeah. So it's more, I think it's more of a timeless issue really than uh, something that's more timely now. So this is – yeah, this is kind of I guess one of the universals, right? We just have to buy into the idea – that ethics and happiness equal, I guess, to results. Yeah, I think that I think some people have uh, an idea that it's a um, a trade off. So you can either be ethical or you can focus more on performance. And a lot of research suggests that that's really a, a false dichotomy. Mm. That you could actually. Uh, by focusing on various stakeholders, by engaging in ethical practices, uh, it can be associated with positive uh, outcomes for the organization, too. Of course, I always try to emphasize that, you know, beyond just the more uh, practical outcomes around financial success, I mean, this is usually society needs ethical leaders in all different areas of life, uh, you know, particularly in business, which is one of the most powerful institutions right now. Well, it's interesting, too, how many of our candidates that are running for office, when you ask them about their trustworthiness and do you trust this person, trust is really low in these candidates, and yet you're choosing you're choosing a leader that will be, in many ways, determining a lot of major business opportunities and decisions. Yeah, it seems like we have a, a weird sort of love-hate relationship with business and yeah. business leaders. On one hand, we have this somewhat negative association. So if you say, if I say I teach business ethics, people say, oh, isn't that an oxymoron, <laughs> right? That those things don't even go together. Um, and then we hear stories in the news all the time about leaders who are engaging in unethical practices. But at the same time, 
we often expect that business to be a cure for many societal problems. So as you talk about the presidential race, yeah. I know at least um, in 2012, the election, the main issue was jobs. And it, it was really a moral issue because they said, we really need business to do well to create jobs, which will improve social welfare. Uh, and so we, I think we're a bit conflicted in society. We, we don't always trust the business leaders, perhaps because of these high-profile scandals that make the news. At the same time, we, we know we're really reliant on them to do well and to improve society. Mm, so true. And I mean, and we are one universal system, right? So we, we like to dichotomize or break or not dichotomize, but break everything into its little compartment like that's business and that's charity and that's right. government. But the reality is they all are integrated, right? They go hand in hand. And it's interesting. Eventually, the next president will probably bring in a lot of business leaders to run different departments, different divisions of his cabinet. I mean, this is we're we're one big system. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think certain domains of life or of work that people used to not think of as much as uh, kind of a business domain. Let's say healthcare, for example. Well, that's you know our our medical students are starting to learn more about business, <laughs> right. about leadership, because it's just impossible to separate the two. Yeah. What When you say ethical leader, define that for us. Um, what is an ethical leader? Sure. So the, we tend to think about this as uh, having two main parts. So one piece that usually is what comes to mind if you say, well, what's an ethical leader? People will say something, what we call them, maybe a, a moral person. And part of this is based on work by uh, research by Linda Trevino and Michael Brown, Michael Brown at Penn State University. Uh, but the moral person focuses on being a good role model, treating other people in a fair way, being respectful. So like honesty, integrity, all those types of characteristics. Mm-hmm. That's what usually jumps to mind. But another part that's really important is, is often re- referred to as a moral manager. And so they not only just try to be good people themselves, but they actively try to influence their employees through uh, talking about values and ethics at work, uh, by having promotion systems where, you know, ethics is taken into account in terms of who gets promoted, Mm -hmm. hire a new employee, character matters. Uh, And so it's really both of those components. You're a good person, you have integrity, but you also are trying to actively influence your employees to act in line with the company's values. That's, that's, uh, it's an interesting idea. I I look at it too. Sometimes, um, you know, in the smaller businesses, you, you can see the ethical manager, the boss, you know, maybe he's a faith-based person, has a strong religious belief. You see those beliefs deeply integrated or embedded into the organization, um, it almost seems like sometimes as we get more organi- or a stronger or larger organization, we try more and more to not bring too much morality or even, I don't know, just values yeah. or principles yeah. into the organization. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. My, you know, my, my background is in psychology, and, um, and I've been teaching in a business school for about 10 years now. So even though I'm an, an insider in the business school, in some way I feel – uh, you know, a little bit as a, as an outsider. And it has surprised me how, uh, let's say, our, our MBA students, for example, are much more likely to use business 
or case logic for making uh, decisions. Yeah. So this is what's best for the bottom line for the company, even on issues that are, are moral issues. And there's this concept called moral muteness, the idea that managers don't like to talk about decisions in values-based terms, even when they personally care about an issue for, for a moral reason. Hmm. You might, uh, a manager may feel like, you know what, diversity and inclusion is really important. And it's been important for uh, prior discrimination that's happened in society, for having just the right type of environment at work. But oftentimes the way they communicate it, they'll say, well, it, uh, it helps us attract the best employees. Right. And, you know, it improves the bottom line. Again, it can be both of those things. But it is fascinating that we tend to think of in the business domain that we should be using this economic or financial language rather than moral language. Which uh, it's, it's amazing to me because um, it, we, we just had a, a screenwriter, uh, Cinco Paul, who wrote the movie Despicable Me, Despicable Me Too, yeah. and he was just on the show before you. And one of the comments he made is people like to hire people they like to work with. And so it's interesting. Most of us, you know, if we were hanging out, having some wings with some friends or some people from work, we would probably be making some moral statements, right? We'd be making, we'd be sharing our values or they'd be understanding our values more. And then we get into the workplace and we try to become so much more, I guess, objective, data oriented. Mm -hmm. But, but it also seems like, um, like you're saying, there's this moral management where, we we want to trust, or, and I guess moral leadership. I want to trust my boss's value system, and I wonder if some of us don't even know what their value system is because it's so you know numbers oriented. Yeah, I, I think it's much more common for managers. I think it's it's also this way. I think it's uncommon for managers to try to encourage employees to do the wrong thing. I I know we get these examples in the news, and it's unfortunately it's just paints a bad picture of business in many ways. But I do think the norm is just essentially what we might call ethically neutral leadership, mm -hmm. yeah. where they just don't say anything about values. And they say, well, here are the tasks that we need to get done. It needs to get done by this time. Uh, and, and that's it. It's just focused on actually getting the work done. And I think accidentally, inadvertently, this can lead uh, employees to sometimes go down a bad, bad yeah. path. Yeah, because they feel like they need to meet these objectives laid out by their leader. Yeah, and then we don't bring up the lack of morality until they violated the rules and we, ugh, now, okay, now we're going to talk about it. You can't do it that way. It's almost, right. it's almost more like it might be better to, you know, we want to be fair with our clients. We want to be open and honest. We want to treat them well. We want to, you know, we want them to trust us. Those are all values. Now, right. go do it within those parameters. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting. It's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. There's a lot of research uh, showing that when we interact with people, particularly new people, we make pretty quick judgments about, about two main things. One, is this person competent? Are they smart? Um, are they effective? And then also, are they moral or not? Are they a good person? Are they honest? And, and much of this research is outside of the context of work. So you could think about who you might want to be friends with or who you'd want to be a spouse or partner. Um, and morality by far wins out. Hmm. So we want, we want people to be around people who are competent, but we, we care more that they're good people. Yeah, maybe. But, this, and maybe this is why we're getting into all of this supposed lack of engagement with our employees is 
we're creating a system at work where we can't be the way we are at home. Yeah. Yeah, because some of these findings actually flip that we find that that competence seems to be valued more than morality at work. Hmm. Uh, and so that's what we try to emphasize as we as we work with leaders or I'm working with um, MBA or undergraduate students is if, we, if, if you have a tendency to segment your life into different areas and there's the religious part and there's the family part and then there's your health part and there's your work part, that on one level that could be okay, but it has this uh, danger of not allowing you to be an integrated person across yeah. life domains. And if you say, well, I'm a good person because I follow this religious doctrine – but then somehow the work domain just doesn't count as who you are, yeah. then I think that's where we see some problems. Oh, that's a big deal. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. David uh, Mayer from um, Michigan University, uh, University of Michigan, and he's teaching us about ethics. Uh, he's the co-director of the Center for Positive Organizations. You can also find more about him um, under his blog, Are You an Ethical Leader? on psychologytoday.com. We'll take a break, come back, have a few more minutes with uh, Dr. David Meyer. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Friends of the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, joining us uh, on the phone is Dr. David Mayer, who, by the way, is from the University of Michigan. So, a special shout out to the University of Michigan who uh, had their day with Brigham Young University last Saturday. Dr. David May- Mayer, we won't hold that against you. Yeah, I was, I was uh, made up my mind that I wasn't going to bring that up. Yeah. But if, you, if you had to bring it up, yeah. yeah. I thought it was yeah. my moral and ethical duty to. Disclose all the information. Yeah, you guys looked great. Holy cow! It's like you're it's yeah, like you're peaking at the right time now, aren't you? Yeah, it's been a few years since we've uh, you know played like that. So I think everyone's cautiously optimistic. I know. but we got we got to play a few more than yeah three or four games. To yeah, get you do. Excited. I think it's because your coach is he wears uh, yeah. khakis. That right? might be the difference. It's all it's in possible. the khakis. Man, there's so fans who would try to uh, dress like dress like. And did you see his bus? His bus has a pair of khakis on it too. That's great. It's cool stuff. And that's there's just so much tradition at Michigan. Holy cow! It's it's pretty amazing. That in and of itself would probably win you the game most of the time. Uh, Talk talk to us about. um, You're the expert in in ethics, and you know it's is it something we teach? Can you teach ethical leadership? and actually make it work? Or are people just kind of, are, are they raised in it? Yeah, I love that question. And we, we talk about this a lot whenever working with um, business leaders or students. Uh, and I actually pose just that question, and we talk about it a little bit. So where I, where I fall on this issue is that uh, you're, there's a big part of your upbringing that you know, impacts the person you are as an adult, of yeah. course, whether it be religion or spirituality or your parents or your guardian's values, that does play a big role. Um, but I think we overestimate that role mm. um, in that as social 
social creatures, we are highly influenced by the environment that we're in. And we have so much anecdotal evidence and research evidence showing that the situation you're in, meaning let's say the culture, the company, or even how tired you are, uh, has a huge impact in how you actually behave. So I never start with saying, well, how you don't have, you didn't get the right values yet. Let's give these values. It seems that we have actually very high agreement on certain values. And, and so the question is really, why is there time? Are there times where we don't behave in line with our values? And I think that makes people less defensive. I agree. They can, you know, we can all remember times where we were tired and we said or did something that we didn't want. And talk about that tired thing, because there is a correlation, right, between your energy, you know, reserves and your ethical, you know, delivery. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's amazing that uh, you, you might think, wow, we after so much, uh, you know, 18 years of upbringing and then, you know, your some formative years in college and beyond that your values would be pretty sad and you'd be a little bit more act consistently from situation to situation. But we just have limited resources. Um, and when we're tired, we've exerted a lot of energy when we're under feelings of stress. Uh, those are times that are really have to pay attention to, to make sure that you're acting in line with your values. I think those are the times where I feel like if I were to keep track of all the times where I said or did something that hmm. I'm not proud of, yeah, it often happens at those times of heavy fatigue. Oh, so yeah. true. And just exhaustion. And then, then you kind of make the fatal mistake, right? Then you, I mean, that that's even true with all these train crashes we're having you know, mechanical accidents, a lot of it's yeah. just over, over uh, tired or overly uh, overworked. Um, are there any? Th- oh, go ahead. The only one thing about that, I think the only sort of saving grace about that is if, if we aware that, or we're aware that the environment we're in, again, either our kind of how tired we are or the kind of broader work environment, if we're aware of that, those are things that we can actually change. Mm, yeah. And, you know, an influence to improve our behavior. So that that is a, a ray of hope, right? That if you're going to do something, you can get better sleep, you know, maybe not stay at work all night, come home yeah. more, you know, do that. What are some other things that you would suggest that we do just immediately to kind of up our ethics game? Yeah, so there's, there's several things. I think one thing that's important is to develop routines and habits uh, in your in your daily life that reinforce your core values. So getting a sense of what it is that you really do care about, you know, in life first, that your, your most important values. Um, and then to try to find ways that you put them into your day that you don't have to think about. That, yeah. uh, so uh, people do that with prayer, but they also, uh, they're just, there are other ones for people who are less religious. There are uh, people might, um, talk to talk to a trusted friend once a week, or have some type of support group. So it's not always what just has to go on in your head, um, or it could be journaling to to keep your keep it top of mind. So I think that those, I think those are some of the ways that we can yeah. keep it more present for us. Well, and I, I think that is um, that that's part of this key, huh? Is is keeping it in your face. 
Because a lot of times in business, your numbers, your the, you know your reports you have to turn in, and the phone that's ringing on your desk, all of that seems to take a more in your face, pressing, uh, you know, a, attack on your your psyche than maybe the things behind the scenes, the values, the mission, the purpose, the principles. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's I mean that's the way we all operate. We have like you know we have our list of things to do and certain deadlines and we're focused on that. And I think, uh, you know, if you ask people, uh, do you think that you're a good person? <laughs> Absolutely. Everybody says, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so whereas I think other areas of life where we could admit, you know, I'm not that great an athlete or I'm not that great at art. This is an area around being a good person that most people feel like they're good people. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but it also means, uh, Sometimes people feel like it's something that they don't need to work on. Right. But we always think about uh, being ethical as, as a muscle, something that you actually have to, you know, if you were to go to the gym and try to get stronger, you would lift weights and through various practice and repetition. And I think the same, <clears throat> same metaphor holds around being the type of person you want to be. You have to have some type of structure or routines that reinforce who you are and oh, who yeah. you want to be. Yeah. No, I love that. And you know what, David, we're going to have to have you back because you've got so much great information there out of uh, the co-director there for the Center for Positive Organizations. I want to have you back to just figure out what more we can do as an average, just an average employee to up the positivity in our workplace. Again, we'll have you back. Dr. David Mayer from um, University of Michigan and uh, the professor of management and organizations there at the Ross School at the University of Michigan. Good stuff, folks. You can also remember, find him on Psychology Today. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, talk to our good buddies down there at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. everybody to the Matt Townsend show we're going to shoot it down to our good buddies down there at BYU Sports Nation Spencer and Jerem hello how are you gentlemen gentlemen uh oh they're not responding Spencer and Jerem can you hear us they're out there they're in search ah darn it having a little trouble there well guess what today we are going to uh, do it without them while they're trying to figure out what's going on. No, I, we can hear you. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Yes. Where were you? We, we were here you. the whole time. Were you talking? Were you using your words? We were using we, our words. We didn't speak until we could hear you. Unfortunately, our microphones. Ah, yes. They're working now. The Whatever. old microphone issue. Yeah. How are you guys? We're fantastic. Super neato. Ready to turn the page. Ready I, for BYU to overcome this Michigan loss. I just I d- need BYU to play another game. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I just spoke to a professor from the University of Michigan, and he didn't want to bring it up, but I brought it up, and he, you know, kind of rubbed it in a little bit. Why would you bring it up then? Well, because it's, I mean, it's just out there looming. It's the elephant in the room. Uh, I've never been in a room with an elephant. Oh, haven't you? Oh, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. I guess I have. It was a very large room. Yeah. It's called a zoo. It was called an arena. Ooh. Were you at the circus? Yeah, I wouldn't call that a room, though. No, no, no. That no. That's a that's a that's a stadium. That's a an arena. An arena. Hey, uh, guess what today is? 
No, no clue. I've, I will never know, minus regular holiday. Well, I'll tell you. It's Ask a Stupid Question Day. This is perfect for we do, our show. We do that every day. I know. Air, air day. Every day, this is there your... There are actually no stupid questions. No. Stupid people that ask questions. There are seriously stupid people that sometimes ask seriously stupid questions. But I've got a question for you guys that might be seriously stupid. Okay. Do you think that a Jedi uh, organization... Yes. yes. A Jedi organization... Well, a Jedi, so- a Jedi society... Oh, okay. Should be allowed to incorporate and be recognized as a legitimate religion or charity so it could receive a tax exemption status. Do you believe they should or they shouldn't? Spencer Linton. I am a firm believer that any Jedi organization should be tax exempt as protectors of the people <laughs> and the society. Absolutely. I'm tax gonna, free. I'm Most gonna... things are just made up anyway. Yes. So why not? Okay, let me give you the answer. You're both wrong. The true, the correct answer is no, they should not get tax-exempt status. Sorry to ruin your day, boys, but my answer was right. But Who I says, did, the courts? Yes, according to the courts in New Zealand, they are not going to give oh, a New Jedi Zealand? society that, that status. They, you know why? Here's the answer. Here's why. Uh, is their court supreme? Yes, it is the like Supreme Taco Court. Menu. Exactly. It's like a burrito supreme. They do not advance religion or promote a moral or spiritual improvement. Therefore, the Jedi's are not considered oh. a religion of that uh, sort. Now, do they have special powers? That's how yes. They define a religion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, it is a stupid question, but I, I. But by the way, can I just thank you both for waxing uh, prophetic? While we were playing Jedi music. Oh, you are welcome. That was beautiful. A tear came to my eye. 83 days. 83 days? Mm-hmm. Till? Star Wars. Oh, that's right. You're keeping score. Nothing keeping but Star Wars. Whoa. You remember that SNL? Ethel Merman. Skit with Bill Murray. He would <laughs> sing theme songs. He did it on the 40th anniversary of SNL. He did it with Jaws, I think. You, you've got some great, <laughs> you got some great pipes there, Jerem. Plus, but, Spencer's a great them. singer too. Why don't you guys sing more? Really, your fans uh, would love it. We've we've jokingly, uh, you know, uh, sold, uh, proposed yeah. in our pre-show Pitched. meeting, BYU Sports Nation, the musical. Uh huh. And I think I think the show. We're not serious, but Psych. The show Psych, yeah, I yeah. Think, had a musical right. episode. Love it. Funny. We've been shot down quite a few times. You know what? You don't, you're not talking to the right people. If you take this upstairs to Derek Marquis, done. That guy loves musicals. I love musicals. He loves big band. He also loves show tunes. Big band, show tunes. <laughs> well, he's going to like the show today, then. Yeah. Is because he? What, what, what is not, on your show? We're not going to have a musical, but we're going to play a brand new game. On the show today, called "Meet That Running Back." Ooh, because BYU has some injuries, and yeah. you may see some new cast of characters out there today. Are they going to run? Introduce you to those guys. Are they going to run the linebacker? Form. Who's oh, the, you're going to love this. Who's the linebacker that's the running back from Bingham High School? Harvey Longy. Yeah, unfortunately, he's not one of them. Oh. He's not one of them. He's not a regular running back. No, no, right? Yeah, and I mean, and he is. Uh, he's banged up as well. Oh boy. So I don't anticipate seeing him at running back this weekend. 
They played, yeah, you play Michigan, you get banged up. Yeah. So, we're, I mean, you're looking at, what, fifth and sixth on the depth chart? Mm-hmm. Or fourth and fifth or something? We're, we're going to introduce you to those guys. Excellent. And the returning game show winner of Meet That Running Back. We've wow. never played it, but we have a returning winner. <laughs> <laughs> From some other show, some other, somewhere else that did From play From that other BYU sports show every yeah. day on yeah. BYU TV and BYU. Um, well, that's a great show. Anything else? What's your question? What's your Twitter question? Which position group will help Tanner Mangum the most on Friday night? Mm. Now, Running didn't backs, you say receivers, linemen? But you said Connecticut has a, a great line, didn't you say that? Good defense. They have a good defense. defense. Good defense. Mm. But they played two poor opponents, you know, bad yeah. opponents, bad teams. This is okay. That's good. Boy, again, you're bringing out a good show. And by the way, I don't want to tell you how to do your show. But but here we go. Uh, it's also National <laughs> Chewing Gum Day. If you want to use that, it's also Mud it's Pack not Day. Baseball season. And it's National Women's Health and Fitness Day. Okay, I'm going to go with National Ask a Dumb Question Day. So okay, yeah, do we'll that. Choose that one. You know, it's, that's more in our wheelhouse. Yep. Matt. Yeah, and any way we can help, we're here to help. Guys, <laughs> have a great show. Thank you, Matthew. Hey, next time, uh, just you know, pipe up when we when we come on the air. Nothing but Star Wars. Beautiful. Okay, <laughs> the musical. Listen for it, guys. Sports Nation, the musical. Thanks, guys. Have a great Bye. show. Thank you. <laughs> that's uh, that is going to be a really great show a musical ben we need a musical sometimes i just like to play a little tune here now. just break out the old piano mm. sit down ladies this is the part where you start singing i'm like ben can you bring me a drink something uh some sprite some eggnog okay i'm done with that it was fun if I could have been anything else, my alter ego would have wanted to be uh, like a performer at a piano bar in the dark at a camp. That's what I'd want to be. Hey, did you hear uh, some other great news that uh, we've got to cover? Because you know us. We like to give you all things human. One of my favorite, um, one of my favorite stories in the news just drove me crazy. So imagine an inmate who escaped from a high-rise federal jail in Chicago. (laughs) Two guys just shimmied their way down. 17 stories on a homemade rope made of bed sheets and dental floss. They then held a cab and they were gone for weeks. Isn't that crazy? One was caught in a couple days. One was caught in a couple weeks. I mean, nobody even saw the dangling rope out the window. These guys, though, had the nerve. They had the nerve to then sue the government once they got arrested. They sued the government and said the government was negligent because it enabled them to break out of the prison in Chicago. They wanted $10 million in damage. But the 7th U.S. Court of Appeals cleared that up Friday, saying... That uh, Jose Banks gets credit for his chutzpah, but uh, the three-judge panel at Chicago-based court tossed out the lawsuit saying no one has a personal right to be better guarded or more securely restrained so as to be unable to commit a crime. So sorry about that. You do not have a right to be protected so you can't commit a crime. Mm. Thank you, court. Straightening that out. 
Finally, in Baltimore, this is just a nightmare come true. If you've uh, flown Delta Airlines recently out of uh, BWI Airport, uh, there was a flight going from BWI in Maryland uh, to Atlanta, and apparently um, a spider, a tarantula, escaped from the cargo hold. (laughs) Okay, turn that off. That makes me sick. The tarantula... Was had gotten loose, gotten out of its container in the flight 1525 last Wednesday night. The captain then had to ground the plane so it could be searched for. They finally found it. They wanted to make sure there weren't any other additional arachnids sneaking out, sneaking around. And they put all the passengers on another flight. By the way, there were no other tarantulas found on the plane. The reason? Because... They had already climbed up and into the bags of the passengers, and they were now transported to the homes across the world. Laying eggs. They're laying eggs in your carry-on. Blah! Ah, uh. That's pretty sad. Hey, we always like to wrap up the show with a hero story. Who better today than uh, Townsend's hero of the day, seven-year-old Aiden Wright from Salem, Salem, Massachusetts. Honesty is the best policy. You know, even if you're seven years old, Aiden Wright returned... $8,000 to the owner after finding an a wallet with $8,000 in it. Aiden Wright was at a park with his uncle when he found a checkbook containing $8,000 at the top of a playground slide. After showing his uncle the fortune that they had found, they went to the local police station to track down the owner, Elias Santos. Santos had been playing at the park with his kids when the wallet slipped out of the pocket Santos, who hadn't even realized he was missing the wallet, was incredibly grateful for Aiden and gave Aiden a $100 reward as a thank you. See, it starts young, folks. Even the seven-year-olds know what to do when we find uh, money that doesn't belong to us. Track down the cops, and they'll uh, help you find the owners. Aiden, you are uh, Aiden Wright. You are the hero of the day here on the Matt Townsend Show That's the show, my friends. Remember, we can't do it without you. You can find us on podcast, on iTunes, or tune in. You can also go to byuradio.org where you can download all of the past issues or podcasts of the show. Remember, by the way, today is also podcast day. So make sure uh, you look us up and forward us to the people in your life that need it. We're here to help you make your life better. Until tomorrow, make it a great one.